in today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Dr. Rick Strassman. It starts very quickly, within a few heartbeats. You know, there's a you know, feeling of um, inner you know, pressure and acceleration and uh, you know, sound, a high-pitched you know, sound. If you have your eyes open, the room starts to you know, pixelate and you break up. Conducting the first psychedelic drug experiments after a ban of 30 years. Within about you know, 30 seconds, uh, there's you know, kind of a you know, breakthrough of the sensation of the mind leaving the body. You enter into this world of light. <clears throat> it's composed of bright, you know, saturated, very intense light. This doctor is sure that he uncovered more than he ever imagined. You could speculate that DMT modifies the receiving characteristics of the brain-mind complex in you know, such a way that it's able to receive information that is real, subjectively real, but it's usually invisible. You know, the beings, I think, are, you know, coalesced information that you know, carry the information that comes from, you know, something that is imperceptible. A fascinating exploration of our brain and our beliefs. Uh, and that's what, you know, DMT you know, provides is a channel or a vehicle or you know, vessel, a perceptible, apprehensible conduit, you know, for what is you know, normally incomprehensible, imperceptible, you know, normally invisible. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Hey and welcome, this is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. Today's guest is one of the most eminent authorities in the field of psychedelic research. Clinical professor of psychiatry Rick Stressman has been credited as being responsible for the renaissance of scientific research on psychedelics. After between 1989 and 1995, he performed the first human studies with psychedelic drugs in the U.S., after a band that lasted over 20 years. His primary focus of interest evolves around DMT. He wrote about his research in a popular book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which is now in its 15th printing. After stepping back from research, he took some time to dive further into the experiences that he witnessed during the studies, and especially the connection between the repeating and overlapping spiritual patterns that emerged, which ultimately led to this most recent book, DMT in the Soul of Prophecy, in which he discusses the um, potential overlap of DMT experiences and prophetic religious experiences. He also co-authored the book Inner Paths to Outer Space and is co-founder of the Cottonwood Research Foundation dedicated to consciousness research. I'm glad you found the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much and welcome, Professor Rick Strassman. Well, thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me on your show today. Rick, why do we need psychedelic research? Uh, well, I think for at least a couple of reasons, maybe three. Um, one is that uh, these drugs provide a window into uh, the mechanisms of the mind, you know, how the mind works and constructs 
its version of reality, both inner and outer. Um, and also there are you know, therapeutic benefits uh, to using uh, the you know, psychedelic you know, drugs in particular ways. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of related to the therapeutic uh, would be in terms of enhancing wellness. Uh, for example, spiritual practice, creativity, uh, those kinds of things that make people, you know, that are, you know, that are already doing well, um, even better. I see. Um, so for those familiar or not familiar with, um, what DMT is, could you give a quick introduction on what it is and how it differs from other psychedelics like, um, LSD or psilocybin or, or NDMA? Um, what are the, the, main differences and in what ways is it better adapted for research than these other compounds? Uh, well, uh, so DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine. Uh, it's a chemical cousin of both serotonin and of melatonin. Um, it's a small molecule. It's the smallest of the classical psychedelics. It's not much larger than a you know, glucose molecule. Um, you know, with respect to its you know, molecular weight. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about DMT is that it's made endogenously in the human body, and it occurs in every mammal that's been investigated so far. And it's you know, found in you know, hundreds, if not thousands of plants. Uh, you know, so it has a very widespread distribution in, in the natural world. Um, You know, so, you know, those are, you know, some of, you know, the unique you know, properties of DMT. Uh, it's also not orally active, um, which, you know, differs from things like LSD or, uh, you know, psilocybin. Um, it has to be either smoked or injected or snorted. Um, and, you know, that's because uh, <clears throat> it's broken down in the gut very quickly, you know, before it has a chance to enter the bloodstream. Uh, you know, and in our study, we gave it intravenously. Um, mm -hmm. usually when, you know, people use it, you know, recreationally, they smoke it, you know, well, uh, uh, they vaporize it and, you know, then inhale the vapors. Um, you know, DMT occurs in uh, the natural world as opposed to LSD, you know, which is, you know, semi-synthetic, um, And, uh, the, you know, time course of, you know, DMT is unique. Uh, when it's smoked or injected, uh, it begins to work in just a few seconds. And the, you know, peak effects occur within a minute or two. And then effects are mostly resolved within a half hour. Uh, you know, so that's a lot more, uh, um, you know, uh, it's a lot, you know, more of a, you know, rapid, you know, time course compared you know, to the orally active psychedelics. Um, and, you know, qualitatively, the effect seems to stand out compared to other psychedelics in as much as uh, when you take other psychedelics, you know you've taken a drug and the effects you're experiencing are related to the drug. Uh, it's like you are on a drug and you're viewing the world through a, a drug, you know, modified perspective. Uh, a frequent refrain you hear from people that use DMT is that uh, it's as if you're entering into a you know, separate universe, a you know, separate level mm. of reality, which is as real as normal 
everyday reality. And, you know, that isn't a thing that you hear, um, you know, I'm anywhere as frequently uh, with respect to the other psychedelics. Um, and I guess, you know, the other quality of the DMT experience is if you get enough, you know, DMT into you, um, <clears throat> you know, quite a few people describe, uh, you know, the existence of beings, uh, you know, sentient and intelligent, you know, powerful, uh, I guess, you know, discarnate entities uh, with which the experience, uh, the, you know, person having the experience interacts with. Um, and you can hear reports like that with respect to LSD or, uh, uh, you know, psilocybin, you know, but it's a uh, you know, very common uh, report um, when you talk to people that have used DMT. Mm -hmm. um, before we go into the um, details of the effects and, and what DMT um, seems to do with a lot of people, um, if you go back in your personal history and your um, uh, research history, what was the event or what was the trigger that sparked your interest in the um, yeah, psychedelics research? Uh, I think it started, you know, like even you know, before I was interested in consciousness and, uh, you know, psychedelics, um, when I was a kid, I liked to make, you know, fireworks. Um, I liked to make, you know, bombs and, you know, colorful things that exploded. Um, and I even started, you know, college as a, um, as a chemistry major, uh, because mm -hmm. I was thinking I wanted to, you know, uh, um, you know, to develop, you know, my own line of fireworks. Um, you know, and, you know, people discouraged me. They, you know, they told me, well, you're a smart guy and you know how to do, uh, uh, you know, medical or, uh, you know, scientific work. So you, you know, you, um, you should be a, uh, you should go to medical school instead, mm -hmm. as opposed to starting a, uh, you know, chain of, you know, fireworks companies. Um, and in, in, you know, college, you know, this was California in the late, you know, 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, and, you know, there was an influx of, you know, two major technologies that reliably induced altered states of consciousness, uh, both, you know, meditation coming in from the East and the, you know, psychedelic, uh, um, well, and the psychedelic drugs. Um, and I was uh, struck, you know, by the overlap uh, in descriptions between uh, the two states. Uh, in, you know, both states, um, you know, there were extreme emotions, oftentimes euphoria. Uh, you know, there mm -hmm. were visions, you know, there were voices, um, you know, there were new insights into the nature of reality and one's own personality. Uh, and, you know, people were you know, profoundly affected by both the, you know, psychedelic state, um, well, in, well, uh, you know, um, as a result of their experience with both, um, you know, the psychedelics and uh, the you know, practice of certain you know, kinds of meditation. Uh, so I began to speculate about a you know, biological basis of spiritual experience um, that perhaps, you know, there was you know, some you know, common biological denominator that you know, mediated both the, 
uh, the um, you know the psychedelic state. Um, in addition, you know, to the meditative state. Uh, so um, I, you know, went to medical school with an interest in studying psychedelics. I became, or I, you know, trained in you know psychiatry, and you became a, a, a psychiatrist in order, you know, to you know, to, you know, uh, you know, to study the effects of you know drugs on consciousness and to you know see if you know there were uh, you know pharmacological means of attaining you know meditative mm-hmm. enlightenment at the time when you started was there already this ban on um, psychedelic research well you know there is a huge amount of you know psychedelic research in the US and uh, you know and in western europe uh, you know, beginning in i suppose the late you know 1940s Mm-hmm. With you know the discovery of LSD by Albert Hoffman uh, in Switzerland, um, you know there had been some interest in studying mescaline, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, but it just you know never really took off. I think you know because you had to give you know rather large you know doses of mescaline, um, and frequently, uh, 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 you know, there were you know physical side effects like you know mm-hmm. vomiting. You know, but LSD was extremely potent, like, you know, um, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of times potent, you know, uh, you know, more potent, uh, as, as compared to mescaline. Um, and, you know, that caught, you know, people's interests. Um, in addition, it was quite, you know, um, uh, it, it was, uh, structurally, uh, uh, you know, similar, you know, to, you know, serotonin, which mm-hmm. was, you know, just discovered at around the same time. Um, you know, so there is a link that was being developed between, you know, serotonin, LSD and, you know, mental illness or, you know, altered states, uh, especially, um, you know, psychopathological altered states like psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the field really took off in, uh, um, in uh, the 1950s and in mm-hmm. the 1960s. Uh, you know, thousands of, you know, papers, you know, hundreds of books, you know, dozens of conferences, uh, you know, but then the drugs escaped the lab, as it were, and became a, a you know, public health you know, problem. Um, and, you know, so the Congress in uh, the U.S., uh, you know, passed, you know, the Controlled you know, Substances Act of 1970, which then, you know, basically, you know, um, Established, you know, such a you know regulatory you know, burden on anybody interested in doing these studies, you know that um, new studies you know basically uh, stopped. You know, so I you know was in college between you know, 1969 and you know 73. Uh, you know, so you know by the time I started to you know formulate you know my interest in these you know drugs, it was a pretty uh, you know barren you know patch uh, in the field. And, and, um, you know, so our, you know, DMs, uh, you know, so our study, you know, giving DMT, uh, which, you know, began in, you know, late 1990 was the first, you know, new American study, you know, since, you know, 1970. Yeah. Um, so, your research didn't start with DMT initially. So, you were first researching melatonin. Yeah, I was interested in the pineal gland. I learned about the pineal gland in college. Um, 
And, you know, the more I learned about it, you know, the more it you know, seemed interesting, like it might be mm-hmm. a spiritual uh, kind of an organ. Um, and it had been revered uh, within esoteric you know, physiology for, you know, thousands of years. Um, you know, Descartes, you know, believed it was, you know, the conduit of the soul, you know, you know, the way in which, you know, God communicated, uh, you know, with the human mind. Um, you know, so, um, y- you know, there wasn't all that much, you know, known about the uh, human response to melatonin or a human role for melatonin. Um, y- you know, there were some um, studies indicating that it, you know, it, um, you know, could be psychoactive, you know, could be psychedelic even. Um, you know, there was a study in patients with, you know, severe depression where it, you know, it uh, increased, you know, the symptoms of depression, even caused, you know, psychosis. Um, you know, there was some, you know, preliminary data, uh, you know, correlating melatonin with the dream state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so because of, you know, you know, the emerging, you know, physiology and, you know, psycho and, you know, psychopharmacology of melatonin, um, as well as its esoteric significance, um, I began my clinical research career looking at melatonin in humans. Um, you know, and I began that study in, you know, in around 1985. Uh, and, you know, we looked at it very carefully and even giving large, you know, doses to humans, it only caused, you know, sedation. Uh, there weren't mm-hmm. any psychedelic effects. Um, and in the meantime, I learned about DMT and mm-hmm. then, you know, switched, uh, you know, research areas, uh, and began the, you know, the required you know, paperwork for doing the DMT study in, you know, 1988. And, you know, two years later, we, you know, finally got permission to start uh, that project. Yeah, that, that, that was not an easy process. You described it in quite some detail in your first book. And it really uh, messed with your nerves, I guess, <laughs> until you got there. Well, it, it was in, it, it was an incredibly frustrating endeavor. Uh, yeah, it took, you know, two years. Uh, and uh, but. Still, I mean, it was an important thing to establish because every other U.S. study which has studied psychedelic drugs uh, employs the you know regulatory you know and uh, you know and the bureaucratic model which we uh, established uh, you know doing the DMT work. Um, you know, it's you know kind of amusing. The you know first you know paper that I you know, published about the DMT work was a paper I like to call what if I'm hit by a bus paper. Uh, it it uh, was a, a step-by-step, you know, manual of, you know, the way I established communication with the DEA and with the FDA uh, mm-hmm. in order to get my you know, project approved. And I wrote that paper, you know, um, you know, before we you know, published any of the results of the DMT work itself, because if, you know, something happened to me, God forbid, I wanted <laughs> other, you know, you know, um, uh, well, I, I was interested in other, you know, researchers, you know, knowing how I did it, um, you know, so they could to, to, be, to, to pick up where I left it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I just want to go um, quickly come back to the pineal gland because I found that quite fascinating um, in your book and I wasn't aware of that at all. Um, so the pineal gland is actually 
um, at least in other animals and more, let's say, primitive animals it's it's um some sort of a third eye if you if you want to um, it, it's literally some sort of a, th a third eye so it has um, some light sensitive properties and um it has some quite uni unique features even within the brain so maybe you can talk a little bit about that because i found that highly fascinating uh yeah the pineal gland is a you know third eye in you know lower animals you know reptiles and uh um you know, other vertebrates, uh, you know, kind of low down on the evolutionary chain. Yeah, it's, you know, it's on, uh, you know, top of the skull in, you know, the mm -hmm. area, you know, where the anterior, uh, you know, fontanelle is, uh, you know, in humans or mm -hmm. in human babies. Um, yeah, you know, but in, in, you know, reptiles, snakes, you know, lizards, toads, um, amphibians, uh, it's a, you know, third eye. It has a cornea a lens, a retina, it's got an iris, and it's, you know, directly uh, responsive, you know, to ambient light. And in those lower animals, it's responsible for, you know, camouflage, you know, coloration of skin and, mm -hmm. you know, temperature regulation. Um, and and um, in the course of evolution, the pineal gland goes inward, as it were, um, like in birds, it, you know, goes into the skull, but it still is responsive to light, uh, mm. you know, directly, you know, because, you know, the bird brain or, you know, the bird skull is quite, you know, thin mm -hmm. and, you know, and, you know, light is you know, capable of, you know, passing, you know, through the bird skull and still affecting the pineal. Um, you know, when you get, you know, to mammals, it only becomes responsive to light in an indirect manner, uh, you know, through the eyes. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's a you know, circuit which, you know, connects the eyes to the pineal gland. Um, yeah, you know, so if, if you've got no eyes, uh, for example, if you're, you know, blind congenitally, you don't receive any light information, you know, the pineal is, you know, kind of, you know, working on its own. Uh, it, you know, requires, you know, light, you know, to you know, be entrained, you know, to the light and, you know, the dark cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so the you know, primary, you know, hormone's always been, you know, melatonin. That was discovered in uh in the late, you know, nineteen forties. Um mm -hmm. and it was you know determined to be responsible for, you know, seasonal reproduction um in, you know, mammals. Uh and it's also uh you know seems to you know mediate you know body temperature. Our study established that. Um, and, um, you know, mood as well, uh, you know, seasonal depression, you know, seems to be, you know, related, uh, you know, to melatonin dynamics. Okay. You know, but I was always interested in, you know, does the pineal gland make DMT? I mean, that would be, mm -hmm. you know, the obvious you know, thing. If, if, you know, melatonin isn't, you know, psychedelic and, you know, there is a spiritual, you know, role for the pineal gland. If, if it made, you know, DMT, you know, that'd be perfect. Um, you know, so I, I speculated about that. I, you know, wrote a you know, paper in the early 1990s. Um, and in 2013, um, a, you know, research group in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, finally established, you know, that there is, you know, DMT in uh, the living rodent pineal gland. But only in very small quantities. And the main source in the body is in the lungs of mammals. Well, the main, you know, source is, you know, probably the lungs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's been established or, you know, more um, or less established, you know, you know, since the mid, uh, you know, 1960s or so. 
you know, um, you know, plus, you know, humans without pineal glands, you know, seem to live normal lives. Um, you know, so if the, if, you know, the pineal gland makes DMT, it, you know, it, you know, may only do it occasionally, special circumstances, as it were. You, you know, there are some un, you know, published, you know, data, you know, coming out from the group in Ann Arbor, which, you know, hopefully will, you know, see the light of day before, you know, too long, which, uh, you know, demonstrates, you know, DMT in the rodent brain. You know, so I think, you know, once that's established, uh, you know, it will really open up the field a lot, you know, more, you know, than is the case now. You know, one of the arguments um, against um, a role for naturally occurring DMT in the human body is its low concentrations. You know, but if it's, you know, made in the brain locally, you know, then it you know, can exert local effects and mm -hmm. even very low concentrations will still be you know, significant. Mm -hmm. um You described that um, DMT can actually pass through the blood-brain barrier. So it's one of the very few molecules that actually the brain actually actively takes into the brain um, for whatever reason that is, right? Right. You, well, you know, most of the you know substances which get into the brain occur you know through diffusion. Uh, it's in the blood. It just you know kind of uh, you know drifts across you know, the blood-brain barrier, um, you know, but DMT is unique, you know, speaking of, you know, uh, you know, the unique, you know, properties of DMT, uh, you know, because it's, you know, transported into the brain using the brain's energy. Um, you know, the brain expends energy, you know, getting, you know, DMT mm -hmm. into its confines. Um, and the brain only treats, you know, select you know, materials like that, specific amino acids. It's not able to make on its own for protein synthesis, um, you know, sugar, you know, glucose in order, you know, uh, you know, to fuel the brain. Uh, you know, so it is as if DMT is required for a normal you know, brain function. Um, which is an interesting thing to speculate about if, uh, you know, psychedelic, you know, substance is required for normal brain function, you know, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, um, uh, well, because, uh, you know, normal, you know, brain, you know, function, you know, means normal consciousness, uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, so it, you know, it, uh, it, you know, could be, You know, this is obviously speculative, but it, you know, could be, you know, that, uh, you know, certain, you know, window of, you know, DMT concentrations in the brain is required for normal consciousness. You know, what's also interesting is, you know, that, you know, the, uh, you know, synthetic machinery for DMT synthesis is quite active in the retina. Uh, you know, so okay. it, you know, could be, you know, that, uh, both, you know, normal, you know, consciousness and, in you know, particular, you know, visual consciousness um, is uh, you know somehow mediated you know th you know through DMT somehow. Mm -hmm. And and how is it uh, related to um, LSD and and um, other psychedelics? So they're quite close structurally, right? They're quite close structurally. Yeah, they're all tryptamines. You know, psilocybin mm -hmm. is a tryptamine. LSD, DMT is a tryptamine. You know, mescaline is isn't quite in the same, you know, category, mm -hmm. uh, but it still has got the same, you know, pharmacological you know, properties, um, which are to stimulate specific, you know, subtypes of, 
um, you know, subtypes of, you know, the receptor for serotonin uh, in the parts of the brain, which you would expect, uh, you know, which, you know, mediate emotion, you know, vision, you know, cognition, you know, volition, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as you mention um, the retina because um, a few weeks back I had a very interesting conversation um, with a guy named uh, Richard Turner. And uh, what Richard Turner does is he's one of the um, no, most well-known um, card mechanics, as he calls it. So he can manipulate cards. He's not a he's not a magician in the sense that he he does tricks, but he really can manip manipulate a deck of cards. That he, you know, you tell him no, you mix the deck. You tell him I want the four aces in the third, the seventeenth, and the twenty-eighth position, and he can somehow mix it so that they end up there. And the interesting thing is um, he has been blind since he was nine years old. Um, he lost sight due to some um, retinal malfunction. And when we talked, um, we talked a little bit about how he sees the world in a way, because he seems to have a very, um, uh, when he got blind, let's put it this way, when he got blind in his teens, um, initially he didn't realize he got blind. It was only when like uh, he was moving his arm in front of his face, he would see the arm But then he would still see it with closed eyes. So we think, okay, I still see it, although my, my vision is gone. And um, what he sees now is, um, he describes it as he has different color patterns um, that he sees. So it's mostly blue and red. Um, but what he can do is he can imagine anything in, he sees things in uh, 2D, but he can imagine them in a three-dimensional sphere. So he says, like a little bit if you're underwater and see... Um, Images that are floating and in, in different um, um, layers, let's put it this way. And he, when he's like, when he's manipulating the cards, for example, he can see his hands in, in, in his inner eye and um, he can see the mani manipulations. So he, uh, it, it, when, he did, he, when he does the things, he has to look at his hands to be able to do it, funny enough. Although he, he's like, he did some tests and he's, he's really... Um, um, there's no way he can see anything. So it's really a, a physical um, impairment. And um, the interesting thing is that um, uh, this, the way he sees so that he has this layers and he can imagine things in dry D was triggered by a um, LSD experience he had 50 years back. So that was the only time he took LSD. And that was the time, uh, that was the event that triggered his ability to um, imagine things in front of his eyes. And that stuck with him ever since. Um He never wanted to touch uh, any drugs again or any LSD or anything again, but that, that was the event that kind of um, initiated it. So I find it quite interesting that you say is, uh, you know, some, some, some drugs or some, um, some drugs that are produced within our body are produced in the retina because the retina was what was actually um, damaged when he got blind. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a very strange story. Well, so did he take his LSD after he became blind or before? Um, after he became blind. After. Yeah. Well, and so did he have you know visions? I guess yeah. he did have visions on LSD when he was blind. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. So he, he was um, yeah. perfectly normal sighted until he was around, um, I think, 10 or 11 years old. And then one day when he was sitting in school, he actually um, realized when he was looking at the, um, how do you, the chalkboard, how do you call it in English, the chalkboard? Uh, um, chalkboard. Chalkboard, yeah. yeah. So the, the letters were blurry and he, he couldn't focus anymore. So he was thinking like maybe there's something in his eye or he got kind of an infection. So he went to the nurse and then and they realized that his um, retina is degenerating. And so um, over the next uh, 10 or so years, he... 
um, or even more, I think 15 years, he continuously lost more and more sight until he was completely blind when he was in his mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. That's called retinitis pigmentosa. My stepdaughter had that. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, uh, your field gets smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. um, until you just can't see anything. Um, yeah. So, so initially, she initially well, he only had like per, 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 peripheral vision. So he could see things that he would like hold uh, to the sides of his eyes. He could still see like cards or anything. So it's like, it's red, it's blue, something. And then kind of that, that went away after a while. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it you know may not have been retinitis then. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I you, you, like every you know couple of you know months, um, I get an email from you know somebody asking me if I ever gave DMT to anyone blind, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I never really did. You know, there was one gal in the study, mm-hmm. you know, you know who was legally you know blind, mm-hmm. but you know she, but still had you know you know some you know perception of light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that only occurred, you know, later on in, uh, you know, um, in her life. Uh, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, of, you know, people that, you know, drink ayahuasca, you know, on that, you know, that are blind, but became, you know, blind as adults. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they're able to, you know, walk around the room on ayahuasca in a way they would never have been able to, you know, without it. Um, you know, there, you, you know, there are some, studies from the you know 50s giving lsd to um, you know blind people i think those are mostly in people who were you know it was acquired blindness they weren't congenitally mm-hmm. blind but you know those were kind of crude studies they really don't go into much you know you know detail uh you know so i would you know call those studies inconclusive mm-hmm. um if you know somebody is you know congenitally blind i just don't understand or i can't imagine you know how they would have you know visual perception if they were mm-hmm. congenitally you know blind because they would just have no building blocks no you know visual building blocks no you know visual vocabulary you know to use um or to you know you know or you know to hang the experience on mm-hmm. um you know but that obviously is a important you know research you know question when it comes uh, you know, to, uh, you know, visual you know, reality, uh, you know, visual perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever received, um, any comments from, from blind people that, um, have tried DMT that were congenital blind? So from your, I mean, I'm sure you, uh, might, you must have, uh, yeah, you must have been contacted by thousands of people over the years, um, sharing their experiences. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think about congenitally blind. I just don't think I've gotten any emails from people who are congenitally blind i have probably gotten from acquired blind people but uh they just don't stand out i i I, you know it it was a you know the stuff that i've heard isn't you know surprising uh when it comes to people with acquired blindness you know so it you know must have been you know what you would expect you know that uh you know, they still had, you know, visual effects, uh, you know, typical of what would have been the case, you know, before mm-hmm. when you know, they were sighted. Mm-hmm. Okay, so interesting. So if anyone who's uh, in that case listening to this and uh, who has been blind from birth and has uh, taken any um, psychoactive, uh, psychoactive substances, then that would be interesting to share with you, definitely, and um, get in touch. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would be interested in hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so coming back to um, your early research, I think we just maybe can can um, quickly talk about this because not everyone might have read your book, so they might not be familiar with how these studies went. So um, you um, got permission by the government to conduct uh, research um, on human subjects with uh, DMT, and you set up uh, basically a test environment at the University of uh, New Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. Um, to administer it, and after a while you settled on um, um, injections, basically. You tried intermuscular first, but that didn't work out for whatever reasons, um, and then decided that the best the best way and the most, the most effective way to administer it, um, or a high enough dose that uh, has some noticeable effects, is um, through injection. So you started giving um, injections to subjects, and um, what were the experiences like that, that um, these people had? Um, well, the question of, you know, the route of administration is interesting. Um, you know, the older DMT studies, which occurred in you know, Hungary and in uh, the U.S., uh, you know, gave it intramuscularly. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, the onset is still quite, you know, rapid, you know, but it isn't as, you know, f uh, it isn't as, you know, rapid as the smoked route of administration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because we received our, you know, funding from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, we wanted to, you know, replicate the, you know, field use, uh, of the drug, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the older studies, which were interested in, you know, comparing the state to psychosis, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, there were a small number of, uh, well, um, I had a couple of, uh, Uh, you know, colleagues, acquaintances, you know, that had smoked, you know, DMT in the past, mm -hmm. you know, so I brought them in and we gave, you know, one of those guys, you know, some intramuscular DMT, uh, you know, so he could compare the speed of onset and the you know time course uh, of the smoked uh, as compared, you know, to our, you know, giving it as an intramuscular injection, uh, you know, so he, uh, you know, described it as, slower and, you know, not as intense as mm -hmm. the smoke route. You know, so, you know, then we applied to FDA to switch, you know, the route of administration from intramuscular to intravenous. You know, the only, you know, previously, you know, published study of giving intravenous, you know, DMT to humans um, was a small study in schizophrenic women mm -hmm. uh, in the 60s, maybe the late, you know, 1950s. And uh, those were hair-raising studies. One of the women went into cardiac arrest and they oh. had to resuscitate her. And, okay. Yeah, you know, so, you know, we were kind of, you know, fearful about giving IV DMT and began at rather, you know, low doses. Mm. Uh, you know, but uh, the first, you know, couple of, you know, guys went, you know, through the screening intravenous, you know, dosing uh, without a hitch. You know, so I, I was a little bit, uh, you know, I was a little bit overconfident uh, once we, you know, gave our first couple of intravenous doses and I called FDA and I said, well, you know, people are responding, you know, in a good, you know, uh, they're responding, um, you know, as expected with, you know, the intravenous route of administration, but I'd like to, you know, go up higher. What do you recommend? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you can go up, you know, two or three times. You know, your current dose. Mm 
you know, so I, I said, okay, I'll go up three times the current dose, which was a big mistake because <laughs> start, we gave, start high. <laughs> you know, three times the current, you know, dose and we overdosed our, you know, two volunteers. Yeah. You know, so we, you know, backed it down to, you know, twice the dose, you know, 0.4 milligrams, you know, per kilogram, you know, which is uh, still a pretty harrowing dose. Um, you know, there's a, a study taking place at Imperial College now in London, you know, giving intravenous DMT and, you know, they're only giving 0.3. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a study that's being uh, begun or, you know, formulated, you know, at Yale right now too. And, you know, they're only going to be giving, you know, 0.3. Mm-hmm. You know, 0.3 is a, you know, fully psychedelic dose. And it's, you know, the dose that we use, you know, for our, uh, you know, tolerance study, you know, giving mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, four times uh, in a closely spaced manner. Uh, you know, we, you know, gave the, our, you know, full dose, you know, in a couple of uh, volunteers for the tolerance study, but it was just, you know, too exhausting, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, we decided to give, you know, 0.3, you know, so, you know, 0.3 is, you know, the current, you know, high dose, uh, mm-hmm. um, at least with, you know, the two studies which are ongoing now. Um, is that a typical breakthrough dose? Yeah. So um, with DMT, there seems to be a, a certain level that's needed. Um, so below that level, you will feel effects, but you won't have these, let's say, breakthrough experiences. And if it's too high, then basically you won't be able to remember anything because it's so whatever it is. No one knows, right? So, but it's, it's too much. So, so is, is 0.3 a, a um, breakthrough dose or is that not for everyone a breakthrough dose? Yeah, you know, for you know, most people, it's a step above the breakthrough dose. Okay. Um, you know, we gave, you know, zero point, well, um, we gave 0.05, we gave 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, and 0.4. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the small dose, you know, 0.05, you know, lots of people mistook, you know, for placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if, you know, they could, you know, tell any effects, you know, they're kind of, you know, calm and, you know, relaxing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 0.1 was a mixed, you know, bag, you know, some you know, people, you know, liked it. Uh, it was, you know, like an opiate and, you know, some people, others described it as MDMA like, you know, but it, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it, you know, clearly, you know, wasn't a, a, a um, you know, psychedelic dose, you know, but, you know, for most people, you know, the threshold at which the full effects began, the breakthrough dose was, you know, 0.2 milligrams per kilogram and anything, you know, and, you know, so anything above that was, you know, fully psychedelic. And the reason you didn't get, you didn't administer it through inhalation or through smoking or vaporization or whatever is that it was impractical in a clinical environment and it has some sort of um, yeah, inconvenient smell to it, let's put it this way. Well, it's, it's, it's smells terrible. You know, that's, you know, one thing, it smells like burning plastic, uh, you know, when it's vaporized. Um, and, you know, people cough, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's an irritant to the lung, which I didn't want to expose our volunteers to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coughing, you know, too, you, you know, cough out the DMT before you, uh, you know, uh, completely absorb it. Uh, you know, so the absorption, you know, would be a lot sketchier. And, you know, our studies, you know, uh, were occurring on a research unit of a busy hospital and, uh, 
yeah, it just was impractical. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, once you found the, let's say the, the, the right amount to administer to your, um, Test subjects is the right way to put it. Um, what well, were you know, the, normal it, volunteers, you know, that's, you know, who volunteers, they were, the, you know, they were volunteers. colleagues <laughs> and you know, friends early on. Yeah. 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 So you, you had around 60 volunteers altogether. Um, so what were the experiences like that, that people had? Yeah. Um, well, you know, about, you know, what to call my volunteers, you know, the research, you know, subjects mm -hmm. or the volunteers or, the normal mm -hmm. volunteers. Correct. And, you know, that's an important point. Uh, you know, that's an important, you know, point, you know, uh, you know, to characterize, you, you know, first of all, you know, the volunteer. Uh, still, I um, was interested in, you know, subjects, you know, that were, you know, familiar with the, you know, psychedelic experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Weren't going to be surprised. I was able to give informed consent in a way mm -hmm. that we, you know, shared a language. Um, masculine, you know, one time, you know, but, uh, still I, um, was interested in, you know, subjects, you know, that were, you know, familiar with the, you know, psychedelic experience, uh, weren't going to be surprised. I was able to give informed consent in a way that we, mm -hmm. you know, shared a language, um, as opposed to, you know, you know, somebody that had never taken a, you know, psychedelic before. Uh, you, you know, so that was, you know, one thing is, you know, they were normal volunteers, you know, they weren't patients. <clears throat> uh, you know, they were all depressed. They were all relatively you know, stable mentally. So they were all in the, they had a social network, they had jobs, they had, so they're not like drug users trying to score drugs through a uh, trial, but, but really they were stable, just stable people, mentally stable and, and let's say emotionally stable, socially stable. Yeah, I screened them very carefully to make you know certain that they had a strong support system behind mm -hmm. them. Uh, yeah, you know they were all employed or in school. You know, you know most of them had you know families. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't you know mentally ill. If they were using any you know drugs at all, it was occasional marijuana. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and you know there were you know doctors and attorneys and uh, psychologists and you know, business people and bureaucrats and, you know, yeah, it was, it was a high, you know, functioning group, uh, mm -hmm. stable. Um, yeah, you know, so that was, you know, one thing is, you know, the quality or the, you know, the characteristics of, you know, the volunteers, you, you know, the other, um, you know, was the expectations, the, you know, preparation, uh, you know, uh, you know, for the, you know, DMT experiences. Um, you know, if you, you know, read about most of the research going on, uh, you know, nowadays, it occurs within a specific, you know, kind of a, you know, setting. Uh, mm -hmm. You're given, a, you know, um, you're given multiple hours of your preparation mm -hmm. uh, to experience a particular you know, kind of effect, often called a mystical or, myst or you know, mystical mimetic effect, um, you know, because that's supposed to be uh, the, you know, salient effect or the most important response, you know, that you're looking for uh, if you're depressed or if you've got OCD or if you've got, you know, if you have a terminal, you know, kind of illness, uh, you know, so you, you get hours and hours of, you know, preparation, 
Uh, you are, you know, trained in a vocabulary, a, you know, conceptual space, a, you know, theological model of, you know, how the spiritual world operates and what its nature is. Um, you're trained to respond to the contents of the visions mm-hmm. and the, you know, drug experience in a you know, particular way in order to, you know, maximize the likelihood of that kind of experience you know, taking place. Um, you know, so with respect, you know, to the follow-up as well, uh, the experiences are integrated mm-hmm. using, you know, that model as well. You know, they're understood after, you know, the fact as either comporting with or not comporting with the spiritual, psychological, uh, you know, model that these studies are, uh, you know, that are, that these studies um, are using. Uh, you know, as you know, compared to our group, uh, you know, where I was interested in could the you know pharmacology of the drug, you know, cause an enlightenment experience, you know, not the, you know, pharmacology in combination with a lot of preparation, but mm-hmm. just, you know, the pharmacology itself, just give the drug, do people have an enlightenment experience mm-hmm. um, as opposed to you know, six to eight, you know, you know, to 10 hours of, you know, preparation of this is the kind of experience you're going to have. This is what you need to do to get it. This is how to understand it as it's unfolding. If you get off base, this is how you return to optimize the likelihood of that experience occurring. You know, you know, so we just told people it's really fast and you may think that you've died, but don't worry. You know, you know, nobody's ever died, you know, from DMT. Uh, and if your heart stops, we've got a crash cart and a, you know, resuscitation team, you know, handy, you know, but just, uh, you know, hold on, keep your eyes open, you know, so to speak, your inner eyes and report, you know, back to us what the experience is like, you know, so, you know, there wasn't any expectation, you know, they were just, uh, scouts. They were, you know, the, front men, front women, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going into where, n- you know, nobody had ever gone before. And I wasn't really wanting to, you know, coach them. I just wanted them to describe what the state was like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that being said, uh, I could describe a, you know, typical big dose of DMT. Um, it starts very quickly within a few heartbeats. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, feeling of, you know, um, inner you know, pressure and acceleration and, uh, you know, sound, a high pitched, you know, sound. Um, if you have your eyes open, the room starts to, you know, pixelate and, you know, break up. And actually, you know, the first few volunteers, we discovered quickly that, uh, they became disoriented if they had their eyes open because the visions would be overlaid on the room Mm -hmm. and it was a pretty sterile unpleasant room so we quickly learned to you know place eye shades um, on people you know number one to you know keep them from getting freaked out and number two to you know make it a more uh in a more uh internal kind of experience Mm -hmm. um you know so you know there's what we, you know, called the rush, you know, the inner pressure, you know, the acceleration, uh, and anxiety, you know, those are, you know, physical, you know, symptoms of anxiety, you know, the, uh, you know, the high pitch, you know, sound, 
uh, with eyes closed or with eyes open, you know, there's a display of, you know, of, you know, kaleidoscopic, rapidly moving, morphing colors. Um, yeah. And, you know, and within about, you know, 30 seconds for, you know, most people, uh, there's, you know, kind of a, you know, breakthrough of the sensation of the mind leaving the body. You, um, you lose awareness of your, you know, physical, you know, body, your surroundings. You know, uh, the first check of people's, uh, you know, blood pressure occurred at, you know, two minutes after the injection was done. And, you know, almost, you know, nobody, you know, re- you know, remembered or, you know, felt that first, you know, blood pressure check. And it, it was an automatic, you know, cuff, which, you know, really, um, exerted, um, a lot of pressure on the arm and, you know, they just didn't feel it. Um, you know, so you enter into this world of light. <clears throat> it's composed mm-hmm. of bright, you know, saturated, very intense light. Uh, and, um, uh, you are, well, you know, if, if you've been able, you know, to, you know, to negotiate, you know, the rush without, you know, resisting it, you know, then it becomes, mm-hmm. uh, Either emotionally neutral or ecstatic. If you, mm-hmm. if you resisted the rush, uh, you know, like you, you know, fought against it, you screamed, you kicked, you said, I don't want to go, you know, then it was, you know, quite, um, anxiety ridden, you know, but if you could, you know, let go of your anxiety, um, as best as you could during that first, you know, 30 seconds, uh, you know, you know, then it was, uh, smooth, you know, sailing emotionally after that. Um, you know, so that visual world was huge. It was expansive, uh, and it, you know, contained things, uh, you know, visual things, um, structures, entities, you know, beings, and, you know, the beings could, you know, take any number of shapes or forms, uh, insects, reptiles, plants, you know, sentient furniture, um, you know, and even if you, you know, weren't aware of discreetly, you know, bounded objects that you could recognize as such, um, you still were aware of an intelligence and a lot of information which was contained in that state. You know, so I would say, you know, if you wanted to describe what the, what, what, you know, the reaction was, it was, just being slack-jawed with amazement and with mm-hmm. and with a you know feeling of awe and you know wonder like you, like you know what is this exactly um yeah you know so um it was like i described earlier most of the volunteers described you know the reality of this state as you know more real than everyday reality and it, it was you know highly interactive uh either with the state itself or with, you know, the beings which could be discreetly recognized in that state. You know, there was give and take, um, usually take, uh, you know, the beings would, you know, do things or communicate with the mm-hmm. volunteers. Uh, it was hard for the volunteers to communicate, you know, you know, with those beings mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. You know, the language wasn't quite worked out. The anxiety was too great. They were too stunned. Uh, the effects would start to diminish, you know, before they really got their bearings, uh, within the, uh, you know, the, you know, the ability to communicate. 
Uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, things were, you know, done to the volunteers. They received information. Uh, you know, they were healed. They were threatened and frightened. Uh, you know, usually it was, you know, beneficent. But, uh, you know, like I said, if the experience you know, began in a scary sort of manner, it uh, usually would stay that way. Um, yeah, and, you know, the um, effects would peak. Uh, within maybe, you know, two, three minutes. And then you start coming down at around, you know, five minutes or so. And, uh, you know, time would, you know, dilate. It would, you know, seem as if a very, very, very long amount of, you know, time, you know, you know, was elapsing. It was a, you know, very, you know, common experience for volunteers to say, you know, how long was I out for? And I'd say, oh, about eight minutes. And they'd say, it you know seemed like hours or it seemed like days or it seemed like years yeah you know so it was a okay. very strange effect on time mm-hmm. yeah uh you know it wasn't you know what i expected though like i'm you know describing that you know highly uh you know highly occupied interactive state you know but you know the i was well you know the kind of state that i was expecting was you know the enlightenment state uh the mm-hmm. you know buddhist kensho you know satori you know um you know the white light of enlightenment uh mm-hmm. you know no form no feeling no sensation no consciousness no body um yeah you know and in our you know nearly you know five dozen volunteers only one person you know had that kind of experience and it was interesting. It wasn't a white light. It was a yellowish light. And, uh, you know, number two, this guy was, you know, hoping for that kind of an experience. Mm-hmm. In college, you know, he was a religious studies major um, as a, you know, physician. You know, he was uh, interested in esoteric psychology, esoteric spiritual systems. You know, so of the large group of volunteers, you know, many of, you know, whom were, uh, you know, deeply um, involved with, you know, meditation practices where, you know, hoping for an enlightenment experience, we're expecting one. And, and, you know, so was I, I was expecting an enlightenment experience as well, because I was coming at it from years of Zen practice Mm-mm. and study, you know, but only one, you know, volunteer had that kind of experience. Um, you know, the rest of the, you know, volunteers, you know, had experiences which were consistent with, you know, who they were or who they wanted to be or what they hoped to be the case, or they learned more about things that they were already, you know, you know, somewhat convinced of or uncertain mm-hmm. about, but were thinking of because they were important in the, you know, front of their mind, the, you know, the, you know, the back of their mind, you know, the middle of their mind, you know, but you know, they were, you know, a, you know, psychedelic, you know, version of themselves. And the experiences were a, you know, psychedelic, you know, version of their hopes, their fears, you know, you know, who they were, their, you know, pre-existing personality structure, um, as opposed to, uh, a pure, you know, uh, you know, pharmacologically induced, uh, white light experience. Okay. But, um, in, in most cases, at least, there was still a sense of ego. So people were not dissolved into, you know, I'm everything and everything's me. But it was there. There was a differentiation between the self and and the others. Let's put it this way. 
Yeah, there was still the, uh, you know, the maintenance of the personality, you know, the observing ego, um, you know, and in you know, some ways, <clears throat> the personality and the observing ego were purer, you know, more, you know, focused, more, you know, concentrated, like a, you know, distillation of mm-hmm. themselves, uh, as opposed, you know, to the obliteration of themselves. You know, they, you know, felt ex- expanded, you know, you know, because the DMT universe um, as a rule is very large, um, mm-hmm. you know, but they still observed and uh, they could report, they could, you know, remember, they could interact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so the ego, you know, dissolution, the merging into the white light, you know, that only occurred in that one, you know, fellow, mm-hmm. and that was only uh, for a brief period of time, you know, maybe you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds or so. Yeah, you know, so it, you know, wasn't what I was expecting and hoped for, and it wasn't what the majority of the volunteers were hoping for. Okay. At, at that time, or expecting. At that time, did you have um, an, ex- uh, did, did you have the DMT experience yourself? So that you had something to base it on, or... Well, you know, that's the you know question I'm asked often, like, you know, have you done DMT? And my my stock answer is if I answer, you know, yes, I, I'm accused of, you know, being a zealot. Mm-hmm. And if I answer, you know, no, then I'm accused of, of you know, of, you know, not knowing what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, I kind of, you know, uh, you know, sidestep that question. You know, the, you know, point of my studies mm-hmm. You know, to, you know, wasn't, you know, necessarily, you know, you know, to confirm my own, you know, DMT experiences or, you know, lack thereof. It was to, you know, gather the reports of a sophisticated group of volunteers and, you know, establish a, you know, cartography, you know, you know, to map out the territory. I see. I see. I see. Um, so I guess you would answer the same thing if I would ask you about other psychedelic experiences that you might or might not have had. Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually give the same answer. Yeah. You know, it is <laughs> okay. about me and my, you know, drug experiences. I mean, you know, those are just as interesting or just as boring as anybody else's. So I was interested in, you know, what happens when you give IV DMT to people and, you know, you know, that was my study. Okay, now it was just more from the um, background of um, did you have any foundation to to base the reports on? So was there anything um, like uh, they say, okay, that sounds familiar or that sounds well completely new because I haven't done it. So that that, that was the background of the question, but I can see uh, why this is a complicated thing to answer. So let's not dig deeper into that. Um, so oh, right, it's a very, yeah, it's it's a it, well, but you know, it's an important question, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm asked it. Uh, you know, uh, with, you know, with, uh, you know, some regularity. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, our study, you know, you know, like I said, was a study of intravenous, you know, DMT in a group of, you know, sophisticated, uh, you know, volunteers. Um, and, you know, could I compare? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the validity of the study, its importance, you know, the information we came back with, uh, 
I think that speaks, you know, for itself. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, you mentioned, um, might have kind of been a sidestep in the beginning that, um, in your very young, young ages, you started an interest for, let's say, experiences. Did you, did you ever have any, let's say, otherworldly experiences of, of some sort as a, as a kid that might have influenced you in your interests Did you have, you know, some people have near death experiences, others have religious experiences. Did you have any, anything that might have, um, formed you or sparked your interest in these kind of studies? Um, any, any events or any maybe repeating incidents? Well, you, uh, you know, sparking is, uh, yeah, sparking is a good term, you know, because, you, you know, like I mentioned earlier on, uh, you know, for some reason I was really, you know, uh, interested in, uh, you know, fireworks, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, the colors would, mm -hmm. would be spectacular. Uh, uh, you know, this was back in the you know fifties and, you know, the early sixties and you could just, you know, go to the library and check out books on bombs and fireworks. So <laughs> I went to the library, checked out books on bombs and fireworks. And, uh, you, you could just, you know, call these, you know, chemical companies or you could write them and say, I'd like the ingredients for X, Y, and Z. And they say, sure. And they, you know, sh you know, ship all these, you know, pounds of, you know, chemicals to me. Uh, and I was like, what, whatever, 12, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you know, so I made, you know, bombs and I made, you know, fireworks and I really, you know, loved, you know, the feeling too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I thought, or I felt, you know, this is really exciting. It's, you know, kind of dangerous. It's really spectacular. You know, the, you know, visual effects, um, are really fascinating. The, Uh, the power, you know, behind, mm -hmm. you know, the chemical reactions was, uh, you know, really impressive and, you know, really novel. Mm -hmm. You know, I think too, um, you know, my dad was a real, you know, fan of, you know, science fiction and, you know, um, and I would, you know, read through his, you know, uh, his, you know, books, uh, you know, uh, you know, during summer break. And I was interested in, you know, science fiction, Other worlds, time travel, space travel, uh, strange creatures, uh, you know, the brain consciousness, you know, so I suppose, you know, even, you know, from, you know, the get go, uh, I was always interested in, you know, fantastic things. And in, you know, some ways I got the last, you know, laugh on people who said, you know, don't go into fireworks because, uh, I just, you know, went into fireworks, but more, uh, on an, in uh, on the in uh, you know I'm on an in eternal level as opposed to you know uh, you know making you know bombs uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know someplace and being overseas. an overall uh, overall safe hazard <laughs> safe, safe, safety hazard right, safety hazard, right. safety hazard yeah. yeah um so uh, w when you um received the first reports and they were kind of overlapping in in the quality of of the experience um Were you surprised because there was some earlier research um, or earlier studies done in the 50s? Um, did they have um, similar reports about what people experienced or was that completely surprising to you? Well, you know, there were some studies of DMT in Hungary and in, uh, you know, the U.S., um, and if you, you know, go back and, and you, you know, track down those reports, they're quite, 
comparable to what our volunteers reported. Um, you know, seeing entities, seeing beings, uh, the interactive quality things being, you know, done to the volunteers, uh, you know, by the DMT beings, you, you know, those are pretty obscure, you know, papers, you know, but, you know, compared, you know, to the huge number of LSD research papers that were out there, smaller number of, you know, psilocybin you know, papers, you know, the DMT reports uh, stood out um, as, you know, being unusual in a way that was, you know, consistent with the reports of our, you know, volunteers. You know, so, you know, before we began this study, I interviewed about 20, you know, recreation or you know, uh, you know, field users of DMT, mm. you know, most of them were in California, you know, I guess that wasn't, you know, surprising, but, uh, I, you know, spoke to these, these, you know, folks on the phone and I said, well, I'm, I'm about to start a DMT study, you know, tell me what to expect. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, you know, uh, expect entities, expect, you know, beings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, you know, you know, combined with, those reports from my informants and the reports from the previous, you know, scientific papers, I ought to have not been surprised, you know, by the frequency of, you know, being, you know, contact as it were. But I think it's just, you know, one of those things you're, you know, blinded, you know, by your own, you know, preconceptions and you'll ignore, you know, the evidence to the contrary. You know, so I was expecting a white light experience and I, you know, forgot about, you know, the beings, I just, just, you know, forgot about them. Um, yeah, but, but it, you know, it wasn't until like report after report after report from my volunteers that I started to, to remember, oh, right. That's what everybody was telling me. And that's what the older papers said too. You, you know, so it's a, you know, good, you know, case of the anti placebo effect in a way, you know, because, you know, they were expecting one thing. I was expecting, you know, the same thing, but on the contrary, uh, it just was, you know, what it was. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's um, one of the ways in which DMT differs from other um, drugs is that even in a relatively sterile setting, like a clinical room without any decorations, um, you know, with a, the blindfolds on and stuff, um, the experiences were quite similar to each other. Whereas with other psychedelic drugs, is the, the setting plays a huge role. As you said, preparation plays a huge role and, and might lead you to completely different end results. So DMT seems to give a very, let's put it, consistent um, experience across many different people with many different um, uh, levels of psychedelic experiences. Um, yeah, well, y- y- you know, that <clears throat> you know, kind of, you know, touches upon, you know, the, you know, role of placebo and of, uh, you know, suggestion uh, <clears throat> when it comes, you know, to the nature of the, you know, drug effect. Um, I think with, you know, medium doses, mm-hmm. you know, not too low, not too high, you know, that's, you know, where you are, you know, seeing the, you know, you know, the maximal uh, response to placebo and, you know, suggestion. Um you're, you're, you know, most amenable or most responsive, you know, to the coaching that you get mm-hmm. beforehand. Uh, <clears throat> if, you know, their doses are, you know, very small, they're, you know, kind of meaningless. Well, it's, you know, micro dosing, which is a you know, mm-hmm. different story. Um, and, and if you give a, you know, very large dose, 
it's, you know, it's, you know, mostly it's a drug, um, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, working on the you know, pre-existing personality, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, what you've been, you know, uh, what, what you've been, you know, coached to, you know, have take place or, um, occur in the drug state, you know, so, uh, I think with a large, you know, dose of DMT with no preparation other than mm. it's, you know, fast, you may think you've died, but you, you know, didn't, you know, just report back. Yeah. We're, you know, seeing the pure, you know, pharmacological effect. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty consistent across volunteers. It's, you know, disembodied. It's very visual. It's very interactive mm. and relational. Uh, it isn't the unitive mystical white light experience very often at all. Um, yeah, you know, so it's, you know, it's the, you know, pharmacology of the drug is, I think, I'm outweighing anything else. With, you know, mm-hmm. medium doses, you're more able to, you know, manipulate, you know, the effect and the tiny doses uh, are a, you know, different story. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we kind of uh, transition into into um, your second book and um, especially the experiences in relationship to, to, um, prophetic experiences put this way. Um, what was the overall results of uh, the study and, and why did it end 1995? Well, you know, the overall result, uh, you know, was we you know, gave a lot of DMT to a lot of people <clears throat> and, um, You know, we both characterized the, you know, psychological responses, uh, Mm -hmm. in, you know, two ways. You know, one was, uh, you know, through the development of a new, you know, rating scale, uh, you know, paper and paper, uh, a, you know, a, you know, paper and, you know, pencil questionnaire, uh, which we developed, you know, which, you know, we developed that questionnaire, uh, you know, based on, Uh, you know, Buddhist, you know, psychological principles, you know, the Abhidharma psychology of, you know, Buddhism, which, you know, breaks mental experience, you know, down into a manageable number of components. You know, so it was a, you know, phenomenological description of the state, you know, you know, the, you know, focusing on, you know, a small, a small number of categories you know, perceptual effects, emotional effects, you know, physical effects and so on. Um, and also I took a lot of bedside notes, which mm. was the, you know, source of the material for the DMT book. Mm. Um, like, a you know, thousand you know, pages of, you know, bedside notes. Uh, you know, so we, you know, characterize the, you know, subjective effects, both objectively, you know, using the questionnaire and, you know, subjectively with me taking notes. And, you know, we also, you know, characterize, you know, the biological effects, you know, based on, you know, serotonin physiology. You know, so we looked at, you know, heart rate and blood pressure and pupil diameter, you know, body temperature, a slew of hormones, you know, beta, well, um you know, cortisol, ECTH, uh, you know, beta uh, endorphin uh, growth hormone, um, a large, you know, number of, you know, hormones. You know, it's interesting in, you know, that respect is, you know, all the hormones that we measured went up except for melatonin, you know, so then, you know, the pineal gland, you know, seemed to be, you know, kind of immune to even a monstrous, you know, dose of DMT, which was, You know, I'm not I'm exactly sure what to, you know, what to make of that, you know, but it is, 
you know, kind of ironic with all of the focus and energy on the pineal that it didn't, you know, budge uh, in response to a large dose of DMT. Um, you know, so we characterize, you know, dose response, uh, you know, dose responses of, you know, DMT and our you know, volunteers, which, you know, means that small doses had small effects, medium doses have medium effects and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we also, you know, looked at, you know, tolerance, you know, to DMT. Uh, when it comes to other psychedelics, you give LSD every day. Uh, after about three, four yes. days, you stop, you know, feeling the effects, you know, pretty much. And there's cross tolerance too. So if you're tolerant to, you know, to LSD, you're not going to respond to, you know, psilocybin. You know, let's say if you've, you know, taken LSD, uh, you know, every day for, you know, five days or so. Um, you know, but, you know, DMT, um, at least in the, you know, in, you, it, uh, well, you, you know, the older studies, you know, with, with, you know, DMT in both humans and animals weren't able to establish any tolerance or cross tolerance. Um, you know, so I was, you know, and, you know, there was one study in humans where they gave DMT, I think, you know, twice in a day for maybe, you know, four days or so, five days, mm-hmm. and there wasn't any tolerance. In other words, you know, the response, you know, to DMT was, you know, was the same. Uh, you know, there wasn't any, uh, you know, diminution in uh, the effects. And, you know, there was a, a, a cat study where they gave it every two hours for 21 days and there was no tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, so I thought, well, you know, if there's no, you know, tolerance, you know, to DMT, you know, that would be unique. And it would also point to a, you know, role of DMT in both normal and abnormal mental function. You know, because if, you know, DMT is, you know, having an effect on the brain-mind complex, you would think it has to be, you know, having an effect all the time, um, as opposed to, well, it stops, you know, working after a few hours and it's, you know, and, you know, it stops, you know, playing a role. You know, so, you know, I was, you know, thinking that you needed to, space the injections, you know, closer together. Uh, and perhaps if you, you know, gave it every half hour, you know, w- which is when, you know, the effects, you know, more or less stop after a you know, single dose, you know, you would, you know, give a you know, big dose, then it would, you know, drop off, you know, then you give another big dose. You know, so, um, so we gave a large dose, you know, 0.3, which is slightly, you know, less, you know, than our you know, maximum dose. Um, you know, four times in a morning and the spacing was a half hour and we demonstrated no tolerance. The, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, fourth, you know, dose, um, you know, caused the you know, same intensity of, you know, mental effects as the first dose, you know, so, you know, DMT we established is still unique among the classical, you know, drugs and, you know, not, you know, developing, you know, tolerance after repeated administration. Could you could you drip feed it uh, yes. um, and keep keep a constant level? Well, yeah, the continuous infusion question is key, uh, and uh, you know that's one of the issues that I you know pose at the end of the DMT book is if you can't you know develop tolerance, you know you know perhaps a continuous infusion you know I'm either number one you know, would establish tolerance or number two, if it didn't, it would, you know, provide a very interesting, uh, a very interesting 
uh, response. Uh, you know, it would, you know, it, it would, you know, provide a, you know, you know, long term or more extensive or more expanded, you know, DMT effect. You know, one of the you know problems if you are interested in you know, doing psychotherapy, you know, let's say with, you know, DMT is quite, you know, hard, you know, you know, to relate, you know, to people when they're in the throes of a big, you know, DMT experience. You can work with them after the fact. And, you know, we did. I mean, I'm a, you know, you know, psychotherapeutically, you know, trained, you know, psychiatrist, you know, so I was able to, you know, work with, you know, people when, you know, difficult emotional issues, you know, might come up. Uh, but, but still it was all after the fact. Um, and if you could, you know, keep, you know, somebody in a continuous, you know, DMT state, you could work with them, you know, psychologically a lot more easily than you could with just one big shot or even, you know, uh, you know, repeated, you know, big doses. You know, it, it was interesting. Um, in the, you know, tolerance study, you know, people were able to do a lot more psychotherapeutic work, even though that wasn't the intent of the study, you know, because, you know, there was a lot of, you know, continuity Mm -hmm. between trips, you know, so the first, you know, DMT experience in the morning was, you know, kind of being, you know, reintroduced, you know, to the state, you know, this, you know, the second trip was, you know, stuff would, you know, come up like emotional things, you know, conflicts in their lives, spiritual questions. And, it would be, and you know, the third experience, you know, was oftentimes extremely difficult. You know, they were, you know, kind of, you know, caught in between and betwixt, you know, resolution and, you know, not. They were just kind of stuck. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, the volunteers after, you know, coming out of the, you know, third dose would say, you know, has anybody ever, you know, dropped out at this point? And I'd say, not yet. <laughs> and, uh, oh, okay. you know, they would say, oh, no oh, okay, okay, yeah, I'll do the fourth. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right, right. You know, you know, well, yeah, you know, nobody wanted to be the, you know, first one to, you know, chicken out, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for everybody, the, you know, fourth, you know, dose was great. It was like a, you know, resolution of all of the other material that had been unearthed and stirred up during the first, you know, three doses. You know, you know, um, you know, so it, you know, seems that you can do, you know, psychotherapy with, you know, DMT, you know, you know, but the logistics are a bit uh, strange. And if you could, you know, keep, you know, someone in the DMT state for three hours or six hours mm-hmm. or, you know, seven, eight hours, you, you know, that would be useful. And with the, you know, short half-life of DMT, you, you could, you know, crank it up. And you can crank it down, mm-hmm. you know. So if you, you know somebody uh, is interested in spending some time, you know, talking to you in a you know less than completely altered state, you could lower the dose, but you know, but but you could still keep them in it. Or if they say, "Well, I you know really want to work on this," you know, give me all mm-hmm. you've got, you know, then you know they could you know go mm-hmm. into that state for fifteen minutes, a half hour, and you know then you could bring them out of it. And then, you know, work with them, uh, you know, psychotherapeutically um, around the material, you know, that emerged in that, you know, you know, super high dose state, you know, so I, I think it would, you know, provide a lot of flexibility, you know, a lot of, you know, dynamic, uh, in, um, you know, uh, 
you know, quality to the interactions, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, which isn't available with, you know, single doses of DMT and, you know, really isn't available with a long acting oral drug like, you know, psilocybin or LSD, you know, because mm-hmm. you just can't, you know, titrate, you know, the effect at a, you know, moment to moment or, you know, minute to minute, uh, uh, you know, kind of time course. So, so why did you not um, do this kind of uh, experiments? Was it something that wasn't um, planned in the design and so wasn't approved or? Well, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, touches upon, you know, why the, the study ended when it did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I approached, you know, the drug study through a, a, uh, straight, you know, forward, you know, uh, you know, psychopharmacology model. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's the, you know, pharmacology of the drug and what is the, you know, psychology of the drug and, you know, how do they interact? You know, but I was interested in both the spiritual and, you know, and the, you know, psycho and the, you know, psychotherapeutic um, effects of, you know, psychedelics as well. So, uh, I was, you know, hoping that, you know, there would be collaborators who would, you know, join me in Albuquerque to start, you know, doing those kinds of studies, you know, colleagues that I had been, you know, consulting with over, um, you know, that I had been, um, you know, consulting with over the years, but, you know, uh, you know, you know, nobody was all that interested in, you know, leaving where they were at and, you know, mm. and, you know, making the move, you know, so I was kind of, you know, you know, boxed into a, you know, psycho, you know, pharmacological, you know, corner as it were. Um, and the, you know, psychopharmacology model is once you've established the effects of the drug, you start to, you know, look at the, specific receptors in the brain which are responsible mm-hmm. for specific effects uh you know so luckily our first uh blockade study as it were you know turned out to be a you know magnification study we you know gave a you know serotonin you know blocking drug and it increased the effects of dmt by a factor of you know two or three Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, people volunteered for that study, uh, that that was no, you, you know, that was no, uh, you know, problem. And uh, it was, you know, very interesting results. But, you know, when we then started to, you know, look at um, actually, you know, suppressing the DMT effect, uh, I began to feel, you know, not that, you know, great about, you know, the research. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to block the DMT effect. I want to either enhance it or utilize it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it was increasingly, you know, difficult to recruit volunteers for blockade studies. Um, and I wasn't, you know, you know, feeling that great about, you know, treating my volunteers as large lab rats, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and there weren't any, you know, collaborators that were, you know, joining the, you know, you know the team to, you know, branch out into more, you know, psychotherapeutic avenues. You know, so, you know, in, um, in the meantime, I had, you know, basically, you know, gotten the answer, you know, to my original question, you know, which is, is DMT inherently spiritual? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the answer was no, it's not. It just amplifies the individual personality and all that, you know, goes into the personality, you know, rather than, you know, having an entheogenic 
or mystico, you know, mimetic effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, you know, psychedelic. It's a mind manifesting drug. It's not a mystical mimetic drug. If you, you know, if you, if you, you know, coach, you know, people to have a mystical experience, you know, then they will, you know, but that is a, you know, combination of the drug and the preparation as opposed to, you know, just the drug itself. So, you know, so we, you know, basically established that, you know, DMT was, you know, psychedelic mind manifesting, mind disclosing. And without any extra, you know, manpower to, you know, take the research into a, you know, different, you know, field or, you know, different arenas, I had basically, you know, gotten the answer that I, uh, was, you know, seeking, you know, we had also, you know, be, uh, you know, we had also begun some work giving psilocybin, uh, and we mm-hmm. gave very large, you know, doses of, you know, psilocybin and some dose finding work. We gave 1.1, 1. 1, you know, milligram per kilogram of psilocybin. And, uh, if you look at the large dose or the high dose, you know, psilocybin studies going on now, they're about one, you know, third of that, you know, 0. Mm-hmm. 0.4. 0.45, you know, so, you know, so when, you know, people talk about, you know, uh, you know, high dose, you know, psilocybin work, you know, that was the threshold for, you know, psychedelic mm-hmm. um, effects in our volunteers. You know, we started with some small doses, medium doses, you know, big mm-hmm. doses, you know, but it wasn't until we got to 0.45 milligrams per kilogram that, you know, people said, okay, you know, this is a, you know, psychedelic dose of, you know, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, you know, so we also gave, you know, 0. 0.7, uh, milligrams per kilogram. And, you know, the volunteers, you know, mostly said, you know, we could do more. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I, you know, gave a, you know, a couple of volunteers, you know, 1.1, 1. 1, which was a, you know, 50% increase, which was too much. It caused, mm-hmm. you know, people to get, you know, delirious and they were just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we were going to have, you know, run that full psilocybin study, our big dose would have been 0.9 milligrams mm-hmm. per kilogram. You know, so that's still as, you know, that's still as, you know, uh, that's still as, you know, two times what's considered a, you know, high dose now, which bespeaks the issue of, you know, medium doses being ideal for placebo enhancement and the higher, you know, doses being, you know, more consistent with, the pure, you know, pharmacologic effect, mm-hmm. you know, so in our, you know, psilocybin work, it would have been the same, you know, model as the DMT work. We'll give big, medium and small doses and just, you know, characterize the state. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for DMT, you know, that was okay. You know, 45 minutes, you know, the, uh, you know, but for, you know, psilocybin, it's, you know, six hours, eight hours. And for, you know, somebody to just, you know, report back in every hour um, or so just really, you know, wasn't cutting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the, you know, volunteers, you know, had a very, you know, negative reaction, fled the ward, the, you know, security guys in tow. <laughs> um, you know, so it just didn't really, you know, seem all that, you know, worthwhile, you know, you know, to continue, you know, the psilocybin work in the, you know, DMT, you know, kind of model, just, you know, mm-hmm. give the drug and, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, watch volunteers. Um, you know, we also got, you know, permission to begin an LSD study and, you know, we got LSD, you know, we had LSD in Albuquerque, you know, but after the, you know, psilocybin experience, uh, I just, you know, it just didn't, it, um, just didn't really seem, you know, prudent, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, to, you know, move into LSD work. You know, we were interested in, you know, taking the studies off, you know, site, like into a comfortable house, you know, near the campus. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, but because of that uh, response to that one or that response Mm -hmm. in the one volunteer who fled the hospital, you know, our, uh, you know, the ethics board, you know, said on the contrary, you know, you know, these aren't, you know, safe drugs. You need to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, you know, at that point, I just said, well, I've learned what I really entered the research wanting to learn, uh, you know, the risks of the studies with the longer acting drugs didn't really, you know, seem mm-hmm. to be worth, you know, the you know, the, uh, the, you know, potential benefit. So I just thought, well, I'll just, you know, uh, you know, close up shop and, uh, you know, start to work out what I actually, you know, discovered in those, you know, five years of giving DMT. So what happens after you closed that research project in 1995 and, um, still there were some questions that were unanswered, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there were a number of reasons the research ended. At one you know, level, uh, I had you know, gotten the answer that I was uh, you know, seeking, and mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't prepared to you know, take the work into psychotherapy or spiritual uh, pursuits. Uh, and... You know, there were other factors as well. Uh, you know, my wife at the time, you know, developed some, you know, localized cancer, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, what, and, and, you know, wanted to you know, return to Canada, which, uh, you know, where she was from. Uh, so we closed up shop and moved up to, you know, British Columbia for a number of years, you know, to help her recover. Mm-hmm. And our youngest was also, uh, struggling in school so you know we wanted to you know help him out and you know get him through high school mm-hmm. um you know so we moved up to canada you know for a while um and uh in addition i was getting you know some pressure you know f- you know from you know my religious community mm-hmm. uh they you know thought i was you know tinkering uh with uh spirituality so at that and, time uh, you were you were maybe just important. I think we didn't mention it. You were part of a um, Buddhist um, group and have had been so far over twenty years. I think. Yeah, I had you know, <clears throat> um, I studied you know you know Buddhism in college a bit. Learned and I learned you know transcendental meditation when I was twenty, I think, and then at Stanford, you know, I. You know, took a course on Indian Buddhism in you know nineteen seventy two nineteen seventy three, um, yeah, and you know then I started you know meditating you know Zen meditation in you know nineteen seventy four, you know so by the time I had started the work uh, with DMT, I'd been you know part of that community, that you know Zen Buddhist community mm-hmm. for about you know sixteen years or so, you know so, <clears throat> um, you, you know. You know, during that you know, period of time, um, I was, uh, you know, discussing my interest in enlightenment and, you know, psychedelics you know, with the monks. 
And it was, it was interesting, you know, the majority of the monks at the time got their first glimpse of enlightenment on an LSD trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, like every opportunity I, you know, got when I was, you know, when I was alone with one of the, with, you know, one of the junior monks, you know, I, I would ask him, well, did you ever take LSD? And almost all of them mm-hmm. said, yes. And, you know, then I would say, well, how important was your LSD experience? Mm-hmm. you know, to your becoming a monk. And they said, I wouldn't become a monk if I hadn't taken mm-hmm. LSD. So, uh, you know, it you know, supported, you know, my, you know, my, um, you know, my, you know, kind of initial, you know, notion that, you know, there was a relationship between, you know, Buddhist practice, Buddhist meditation, and, you know, the psychedelic state. You know, so, I think, you know, what the uh, disclosure from the monks about the importance of LSD in their spiritual, you know, lives, you know, wasn't maybe as much as the drugs, you know, kind of, you know, triggering an enlightenment state as much as, you know, giving them a glimpse mm-hmm. of, you know, some other um way of looking at reality was called uh you know well you know there's a <clears throat> expression in you know buddhism called you know bodhicitta which which mm-hmm. is the initial you know thought of enlightenment you know the the you know seed of an enlightened life or an enlightened mind you know so that i think was what you know they were describing was that their lsd experiences were like a you know were an experience of you know bodhicitta which you know then encouraged them to become buddhists and train you know find a teacher you know live a monastic life and mm-hmm. you know then you know, uh uh you know build on you know that uh you know on that um that flash that you know kind of initial flash um yeah you know so uh <clears throat> You know, um, well, well, well. So over the you know course of all those years, uh, you know, I continued to discuss with amongst you know my interest in uh, you know psychedelics and you know the overlap or the influence or the interdependence or you know the you know the you know the uh, well you know the mutual influencing mm-hmm. uh, of those you know two states. Uh, within the person. Um, and I was encouraged to, you know, go deeper. You know, that was, you know, kind of one of the mantras there was, you know, go deeper. Um, yeah, but, you know, once I actually even began the studies and started writing about them, and especially an article that I you know, published in a, you know, Buddhist magazine called, uh, you know, called, you know, Tricycle, uh, mm-hmm. you know, w- w- where I explicitly, you know, make the comparison and start, you know, you know, connecting the dots between you know, Buddhist practice, you know, bodhicitta, the enlightened state, the DMT state, the psychedelic effect. Uh, you know, then uh, once you know the, uh, you know, once you know the rubber hit the road, as it were, uh, the you know monastic community, you know, felt they had to distance themselves, you know, from mm-hmm. me and you know my ideas. You know, so, uh, you, you know, there was, uh, you know, some, you know, pressure, you know, coming, you know, from them as well to stop doing the research. You know, so I guess, you know, there were, you know, three factors, you know, the religious community one, 
you know, my wife's, you know, health and you know, family issues and, you know, scientific ones. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I stopped the studies in, in, um, you know, 95, moved up to Canada and then, uh, <clears throat> started to, you know, try to make some, you know, sense of my, of my volunteers' reports. Um, especially the, the, um, you know, the interactive relational quality of mm. the DMT effect as opposed, you know, to the unit of mystical white light one, which I was expecting. And the feeling that it was more real than real. Uh, you know, you know, those were, you know, two, you know, findings that really struck me. I was really impressed with, you know, both of those aspects, mm-hmm. you know, so I started to, you know, look around for, you know, models, um, you know, the, well, the models that I had, you know, brought to bear on the original studies were uh, three, you know, one was the, you know, psychoanalytic, you know, this is, uh, you know, the, you know, DMT, you know, visions and you know, voices were just uh, repressed, you know, memories, repressed, you know, conflicts or impulses, mm-hmm. you know, that were then, you know, kind of actualized in the mind. You know, the other, you know, model was the, you know, psychopharmacology model. You know, this is your brain on drugs. And, you know, the other, you know, model, you know, was the Buddhist model, um, which, you know, which at least, you know, from the you know Zen perspective, you know, also, you know, treated the, you know, the visions and the voices as, you know, secondary. You know, they weren't the, you know, primary goal of one's spiritual quest. You know, so all three of those, you know, models, you know, characterized the DMT effect as, you know, less real than real. It was a step down, you know, from reality. You know, but in our volunteers, there was, you know, it was, you know, more real than real. You know, so I started to, you know, look around for, you know, models that would be consistent with, you know, DMT providing entry into a more real than real, you know, subjective experience. You know, a, you know, more real than real, you know, subjective universe. Um, you know, so I started to, you know, root around, you know, new, you know, physics, dark matter, parallel universes, dark energy, you know, so those, you know, were interesting. I mean, you could speculate that DMT modifies the receiving characteristics of the brain mind complex in such a way that it's able to receive information that is real, subjectively real, but it's usually invisible. Um, so in a way, like yeah, a, like, so a, like, a, like tuning, tuning it into a radio station um, that you haven't previously discovered, and the waves are out there. It's just like a different wavelength that we haven't discovered yet, but it's still there. DMT would basically tune us into that frequency, if you wish, and sort of give a more uh, practical example. Uh, practical example of that. Yeah, yeah, you're you're kind of you know changing you know the tuning of consciousness you know to be able mm-hmm. to you know, perceive things that you don't normally don't you know like a telescope uh, you, you know all those you know things are out there in outer space but you just can't you know uh, you know normally you know see them without an enhancement of the mind brain mm-hmm. you know complex with the you know technology of a mm-hmm. microscope or a you know telescope or you know what have you. 
And, you know, the brain is way more complicated than any machine we've ever built. So it makes, you know, sense that if you, you know, profoundly, you know, modify the, you know, you know, the, you know, functioning of the brain mind complex, you'd be able to, you know, perceive things that, you know, that are extant, you know, they're real, they're externally objective. So, so normally, this is not in a way, um, a perspective that's really esoteric and very, you know, woo-woo in the worst kind of uh, sense. But it's really uh, like saying, okay, look, we, we 50 years ago, we didn't have microwaves. Now we have microwaves. We didn't ever imagine that we would have the ability to use a little flat device and you know, talk to anyone on this planet. Now we have it because there is stuff out there that you know, we didn't know existed 50 years ago. So it was really from a purely scientific perspective that you that you. Um, made these thought experiments. So it wasn't like, okay, I'm trying to find some some reasoning for it, but it was a purely scientific approach. Uh, right. You know, um, you, you know, but the analogy in a way breaks down, you know, because we're looking at, you know, uh, you know we're, you know, looking at, you know, purely subjective effects. Mm -hmm. Um You know, so with respect to a microscope or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, you know, terms of a telescope, you know, mm -hmm. you know, like anybody can look through a microscope or look, you know, through a telescope and mm -hmm. you can take pictures, um, okay. that you could look at, uh, with, with a microscope or a telescope. But, uh, still, it isn't a completely, you know, worthless analogy because everybody dreams. And everybody mm -hmm. knows what a dream is like, and everybody can compare dreams. You you can't look at somebody else's dream, but the um, but the experience of you know dreaming is an established you know fact that you know people mm -hmm. can compare notes and say, yeah, I dream, and this is the na nature of my dreams, and somebody will say, well, I dream too, and this is the nature of my dreams, and. Mm. You, you and you build up a you know consensus reality version mm. of dreams as it were you know i um you know one of the things i like to you know kind of joke about speculatively is you know maybe you know one day there'll be you know cameras or imaging collecting devices that can you know collect images of what's in dark matter mm. and uh you could take a picture and You could show it to you know somebody, and you know they would say, "Oh, that's just like what happens on you know DMT." But mm -hmm. you know, obviously, you know that's a long way ahead in the future, um, if ever that kind of you know technology would uh, you know you know would appear. Can um, you talk a little bit about the dark matter um, example that you're giving? Because maybe not everyone is familiar with uh, what dark matter is and how it could be um, a piece of the puzzle. Well, uh, um, well, well. So dark matter um, is dark; it's invisible. Um, it, you know, it, you know, neither you know generates light or reflects light. Um, you know, but it explains um, a very large percentage of the universe's mass. Um, you can tell, you know, that the mass um, is there because it exerts gravitational effects, and. Uh, You know, they've calculated that, you know, 90% of, you know, the mass of the universe is invisible, you know, dark matter. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, you know, there's a notion of, 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 of what's called, you know, dark energy too, which I'm less, you know, familiar with. And, you know, there was a 
paper just came out a few weeks ago about a dark fluid, which you know somehow it combines dark matter with you know dark energy. Okay. You know, but in any event, it's stuff out there which is invisible, but still it exerts effects, and it's the majority of the mass in in uh, the universe. Um, you know, so. If it's the majority of the mass of the universe, it has to occupy space. Um, if it occupies space, it must contain contents. Uh, so <laughs> what's to keep you from imagining that the you know, contents of dark matter, the dark universe, you know, couldn't be um, at some you know, level or at some point in time you know, perceived? And, you know, they're building these incredibly expensive, complicated you know, de- you know, detectors for, you know, dark matter, you know, um, the, um, <clears throat> uh, well, the fundamental particle of dark matter is called a neutrino. Um, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, they're developing these, you know, these, you know, detectors, you know, for neutrinos in these huge, deep, you know, tunnels under earth. Um, you know, so they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, closing in on neutrinos, but, uh, you know, the obvious place, you know, to go if you're looking for the most sophisticated machine in the universe is our brain. So it, you know, seems to me, mm-hmm. you know, there ought to be, you know, more emphasis, you know, placed on that, uh, you know, than, you know, building these huge clunky machines. So the idea was that maybe um, there is um, this dark matter, there is, let's put it this way, in a different world out there that we cannot perceive um, in this reality that we live in, but maybe DMT somehow opens up like a channel or gives us the ability to interact with that uh, different layer of reality. Uh, right. It's a, you know, working hypothesis. I, I mean, obviously it's, you know, beyond speculative, uh, but mm-hmm. still, um, it, you know, it's a working you know, hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I think you could design experiments with a working hypothesis like that. Uh, the experiments would be complicated and might not be able to be accomplished for you know hundreds of years maybe but uh, still I think it's a reasonable avenue you know to pursue but you know in uh, the meantime um, mm. I was more thinking along the lines of other ways to look at the DMT effect which uh, wouldn't uh, require the you know building of new machines but you know, could instead be, you know, focused on, you know, what we've got uh, at hand at the moment, which is our, you know, mind-brain, you know, complex. You know, so the other, you know, way of looking at states of, or states of reality, which are, you know, normally invisible, are, you know, the religious, you know, disciplines out there. You know, they've been, you know, looking at, spiritual you know realms which are you know which are you know um which are you know uh which are usually invisible um you know they used and you know they use altered states in order you know to access those normally invisible states um and that they've been you know working uh they've been you know working all along to extract useful information you know from those states um, you know, one of the, you know, drawbacks of a purely, you know, mechanistic approach, you know, to the, you know, DMT effect specifically and the, you know, psychedelic state in general is, 
you know, what is, you know, the meaning and uh, the message that's contained in those states. And the you know, scientific models are, you know, more concerned, you know, you know, with the nuts and bolts, you know, with, you know, how those things work or come to pass. But, you know, what they're good for uh, isn't uh, as important an emphasis. And, you know, the religious, um, you know, traditions, you know, for millennia um, have been, you know, more or as much interested in, you know, what they're good for. You know, what can you learn from those states that you can't, you know, normally, you know, learn from everyday consciousness. You know, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you know, so, uh, I, you know, rooted around, you know, shamanism some, uh, and, you know, one of the strengths of, you know, the shamanic model is, you know, they do, uh, attribute as much reality or even more so, you know, to the normally, um, invisible states, which are, you know, which are, um, you know, made perceptible. Uh, when you're under the influence of a psychedelic. Um, and, you know, they also extract, you know, valuable, uh, you know, tools. You know, there's healing that's involved um, in, you know, the shamanic model. Um, you know, but uh, it's, it's a, you know, non-Western model. It's, you know, not theistic, which I think if it's going to really gain, uh, you know, traction in uh, the West, it, you know, needs to incorporate God. Um, you know, they, um, incorporate spirits, uh, spirits of plants, you know, celestial spirits, but they don't, you know, really, you know, you know, take it, uh, you know, like above the spirits, like, you know, you know, who, you know, created the spirits, you know, who controls them, you know, what's the information that is being transmitted or transmuted through the spirits, you know, where does that come from? Um, and also, you know, you know, shamanism is, I think it's still kind of ethically challenged. Um, you know, it's all, well, uh, Stephen Beyer wrote a book called Singing to the Plants where he has a really great line in there. It's, 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 it's about, you know, Colombian shamanism. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has a line in there, you know, saying there are good shamans and bad shamans, but they're all bad shamans. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what he you know means by that, you know, is, you know, their whole, you know, model of, you know, health, you know, and, uh, you know, disease and healing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, their, you know, model is if you're sick, it's because you've been cursed by a bad shaman. And mm -hmm. if you, you know, heal somebody, you're, you know, turning that, that, you know, curse away, you know, from the person and you're, re mm -hmm. and you're, you're returning it, you know, to the bad shaman, mm -hmm. you know, so it, it instantly becomes aggression, counter aggression, uh, mm -hmm. black magic, witch, witchcraft, you know, machismo to the max, uh, fueled with ayahuasca or the, or other psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I know, uh, you know, shaman in, uh, um, in a Latin American country. Um, he's a European and he's, you know, lived there forever. And, um, you know, he, you know, told me in the state, you know, where he, you know, lives in one year, 12 shamans were murdered by other shamans. Uh, you know, so, okay. It's an ethically, you know, challenged field and, uh, mm -hmm. an ethically, you know, challenged, uh, you know, you know, model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that isn't to, you know, say that, you know, Buddhism isn't ethically challenged or, you know, the Western religions aren't, aren't ethically you know, mm -hmm. challenged, but you would hope that any other model would at least, you know, be, um, you know, comparable or an improvement over, you know, the Western, uh, you know, the Western model.
So what about Buddhism? Well, you know, Buddhism is, you know, good in some ways because it studies very, you know, carefully the, you know, contents of the mental states that are induced, you know, through meditation, you know, and I suppose if I had been trained in the Tibetan, uh, you know, tradition, I may have been more keen to continuing my investigations uh, mm-hmm. into Buddhism uh, and the DMT <laughs> effect, because, you know, um, a large amount or a, um, a number of, you know, you know, of uh, schools within, you know, uh, within, you know, that um, within the Tibetan uh, um, schools uh, are you know, focused on your know, visualization mm-hmm. and the deities and interacting with, you know, the contents of those, you know, highly altered states, you know, brought about through chanting or, you know, breathing, you know, visualizations, you know, but the school in which I was trained, you know, the, you know, the Zen school, you know, the Soto mm-hmm. Zen school uh, is, you know, you know, very down to earth, um, or else it's c- completely rarefied, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when it speaks about the enlightened state and you know the visions that are on you know the way to the enlightened state, they you know tend to you know disregard uh, you know the visions and uh, the voices, you know, mm-hmm. considering them uh, kind of flotsam and you know jetsam, you know, you know, kind of unreal. You know, um, you know, material which is being, uh, you know, shed on the way uh, toward the desired unitive state. Um, you know, so you know they don't really put much, you know, credence in you know, the reality of the effects which the DMT you know, volunteers uh, were, you know, so impressed with, you know, the reality of. You know, and also, you know, at a purely personal level, I was discouraged within my community to, you know, pursue it any further. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a you know, certain point, uh, you know, we parted ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so in a way, you, you, know, th- um, you know, that gave me license to return to my own spiritual roots. Um, I was born and raised, you know, Jewish. Um, and I had, you know, read a little bit of, you know, the Bible when I went to Hebrew school as a kid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, um, you know, as a result of being, uh, you know, cut loose, you know, from the Buddhist, uh, you know, fold, um, I could then start, you know, reading the Bible again, uh, you know, from a, and, you know, from an adult perspective and also, you know, from a Zen perspective, you know, like, you know, to be able to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not be so swayed by, you know, my, uh, um, you know, by my reactions, you know, to the material in the text, um, either my, you know, cognitive, you know, reactions like, you know, mm-hmm. this makes no sense mm-hmm. or, you know, my emotional you know, reactions like, uh, this really pisses me off. Uh, you know, that was, you know, one of the, you know, things that was, a you know, uh, you know, very, um, useful consequence of my, you know, Zen training was it allowed me, you know, to return, uh, you know, to the Hebrew Bible with, you know, with, uh, you know, with, um, with, uh, you know, some equanimity, uh, and, you know, some spiritual maturity. 
You know, so, uh, you know, for, you know, for um, a number of reasons, uh, I started to, you know, dig into the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, one of, you know, the reasons, you know, being that, well, perhaps, you know, there's a spiritual, you know, model, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which is more consistent with the DMT effect, uh, as described, you know, you know, by my volunteers. Um, so, uh, I began, you know, reading the text and, uh, as, you know, time went on, uh, I began to, you know, notice this thing called, you know, prophecy, um, mm-hmm. which, uh, started to resemble or started in my you know, mind to look more and, you know, more like the DMT effect. And, you know, when I use the word, you know, prophecy, uh, it's a lot more expansive, you know, version than what's usually used as the understanding of the term uh, in the West, you know, mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, usually when you think of, uh, you know, prophecy, it's within the you know, setting of, of you know, predicting or you know, foretelling the future. But, you know, that's, you know, more of, uh, you know, the, well, 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 so that's, you know, um, you know, kind of an artifact of the Greek translation of the word for, you know, prophecy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, which appears in Hebrew. You, you know, the, uh, you know, um, well, the Hebrew word, you know, for prophecy or, uh, you know, for the person of uh, the prophet is Navi. And, you know, the roots, uh, when you, uh, you know, look at it, uh, is usually, you know, translated as interpreter or spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, um, or to be elevated is another uh, translation of the root of Navi. Or even, you know, to bubble up. You know, but, you know, but, you know, the notion of, you know, foretelling isn't, you know, built in, you know, to the Hebrew word, you know, Navi. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the Greek translation of, of, you know, the Bible, you know, from Hebrew translated the word navi prophetes, which means, you know, to see ahead, which is consistent with the Greek idea of, you know, divination. You know, the divine helped you divine. You could mm-hmm. foretell through your, you know, contact with the spiritual, you know, world. You know, so when spiritual experiences were described in the Hebrew Bible, as, you know, Nivuah or the experience of a Navi, it was, you know, translated, you know, by the Greek into uh, the, the, you know, term prophetes. You know, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, prophecy, you know, you know, then became um, associated only with, you know, foretelling and, uh, um, and you know, predicting. You, you know, but if you, you know, consider, you know, prophecy in the Hebrew Bible as any spiritual experience, you know, then it, you know, really opens up, you know, the field of study, you know, you know, because it could be inspiration. It could be, you know, kind of, you know, divinely endowed courage. It could be, you know, creativity. You know, it could be any altered state. Like if you open the first, you know, book of, or if you open the book of Ezekiel, the first, you know, chapter, it's an incredibly psychedelic experience, uh, you know, very DMT-like, you know, visions um, and voices, uh, out-of-body ex- experiences, uh, you know, very strong emotions, 
uh, you know, paralysis. He, you know, falls down. Um, you know, there's, you know, the you know, sound of roaring waters. You know, there's mm-hmm. ice that's above him, you know, blue, white ice. There's lightning, there's wheels, there's eyes, there's wings. Yeah, you know, so, it, you know, it wouldn't, you know, necessarily, you know, be, well, in the future, you know, this, I mean, that is going to happen. It, it could be anything that is a spiritual experience, so um, at, which, um, you know, can, you know, cover a huge gamut. So, so, so um, at that time, were you still considering the, what you call the bottom-up approach? So that basically... Um, whatever, let's put it, uh, holy scriptures are there are basically a reflection of the experiences that people had through psychedelics or were you already at the stage where you said, okay, that might be what you called a top down approach. So that's, um, basically, um, DMT is the, the tool that's, that's, uh, higher beings or a God or whatever you want to call it, um, uses to communicate with us. Yeah, well, the top down versus the you know bottom up you know model you know questions I you know really wasn't you know considering um, mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, I was you know more I was more trying to you know find a spiritual experience that was you know like the DMT one, mm-hmm. uh, both you know co- both you know content wise, mm-hmm. like you know the visions um, and the voices, um, you know in addition to being considered as real or, or, you know, more real, you know, than everyday reality, I started, you know, the model building after, uh, or, you know, you know, toward the end of the prophetic states, you know, book, mm-hmm. when I started to, you know, look at a you know biological explanation for the prophetic experience, you know, so in the beginning of my invest, well, you know, I, I should, you know, I explained, you know, that the prophetic states book, you know, DMT and the soul of prophecy, which came out in 2014 was mm. the end of 16 years of study. I mm. mean, it was a backbreaking endeavor. Um, and actually after I, you know, finished the study, I got really sick for a year. It just oh, completely, well. okay. it, it completely spent me both, you mm. know, mind and body and spirit were just completely depleted, you know, so it was, it was a long process. Um, and it, you know, wasn't easy to both, you know, you know, read the Hebrew Bible, you know, 10 times through and extract every report of every, you know, figure that was, you know, that, you know, was at all, you know, like a spiritual, uh, effect and, uh, you know, categorizing those reports using the same, you know, categorization that I used in the DMT process, then starting to, you know, look, you know, for the differences and then reading through the Bible like another half dozen times to start to Mm -hmm. extract, you know, what is the information content uh, of this book? You know, you know, because in, uh, you know, phenomenological comparison of the two states, you know, you know, the prophetic state and, you know, the DMT state, you know, are, you know, phenomenologically very similar, I'd say, you know, 90% overlap. But, you know, you look at, you know, the DMT effect, and it has, you know, clearly, you know, not, you know, had, you know, the same impact on, you know, Western civilization and the world as the, you know, prophetic experience as laid down in the Hebrew Bible. You know, so I had to start to figure out, well, you know, what's the difference? Uh, between those two states. And, you know, the difference 
is, you know, the information content, um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the information, you know, content in the, in uh, the DMT state contained, you know, two things, you know, one, you know, was the state itself, a description of the state, which, you know, the volunteers were very good at reporting. The state mm-hmm. is like this. It mm-hmm. certain things happen. Uh, certain things take place. It looks like this, sounds like this, feels like this, you know, but, you know, the content, you know, the actual, well, well, the, well, well, the information, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the abstract, you know, cognitive material uh, was, you know, pretty thin, you know, relatively speaking, it, it was more, you know, personal insights, you know, resolution of personal problems uh, or questions, you know, when it came to ethical or, you know, moral teachings, you know, the nature of God's the nature of, you know, how to interact with, with oneself and with, you know, the outside world, you know, those were, you know, kind of elementary, they were kind of meager, you know, relative, you know, to the descriptions of, you know, the actual you know, content, you know, so, you know, one way in which the prophetic, well, you know, the, the, you know, fundamental, you know, way in which the prophetic and the DMT states differ is, you know, the content, you know, the informational content, you know, the, the, you know, meaning and the message, you know, so that required going, you know, uh, once more going, you know, through the text with a, you know, fine tooth comb, uh, to extract, you know, the meaning, well, yeah, you know, to, to extract the meaning and the message. So, um, when you start to look, um, you know, at the meaning, um, plus the message, the you know, figures in you know, the Bible all attribute it, you know, to God, you know, to an outside thing. Mm-hmm. It isn't all in your mind. It isn't, you know, something, you know, that you, you know, that you come to. It's, uh, it's endowed, you know, from outside and the experience, you know, plays out in your mind and it's, you know, more real than real. That's another hallmark of the prophetic experience is it completely sweeps away the ongoing you know, reality that you're in and replaces it with, uh, uh, you know, with a dialogue with um, either God or, you know, God's angels, you know, so that was, uh, you know, another couldn't that be just a purely um, psychopharmacological um, thing that you say, okay, DMT just has the effect on our brain that things appear more real than they are, that more real than real. So couldn't that be just an, a side effect of that particular drug? Well, you know, I'm, uh, you know, not, you know, considering that the p- people in the text, in the you know Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, you know, took drugs, um, either, you know, uh, either, you know, plants or plant extracts. I'm more, you know, banking on the role of endogenous DMT that, mm-hmm. you know, DMT increases, uh, you know, within the human body and, you know, mediates, you know, the phenomenology, um, of the, uh, of, the, you know, visions and, you know, the voices of, you know, the prophetic experience. You know, I, th- I think once you begin to, uh, 
you know, postulate that the, you know, feeling of the reality of the DMT state is purely a brain phenomenon. Um, in a way you start to, you know, you begin to, you know, chase your tail. You begin to, uh, go in an endless loop. And, you know, what I mean by that is if, you know, this reality is given its, you know, sense of reality because of a steady, you know, trickle on the DMT, mm-hmm. which is endogenous, uh, then what does that mean? Like, are there parts of the brain which, you know, mediates the, you know, feeling of you know, reality? In which case, you can't really tell uh, if it's a, you know, false biological, uh, not, not false biological, but, uh, well, you know, one of the things that, you know, Dennis McKenna likes to say is that, you know, that, you know, I, you know, I mean, it's the whole, you know, notion of it, you know, I'm of it all being chemistry, you know, it's, you know, like everything is, is chemistry. Our perceptions, our thoughts, um, our sense um, of reality. So I think when we're looking at the you know source of the information that's you know downloaded, um, mm-hmm. we need to you know take it at face you know value first, and then look for. Uh, underlying mechanisms that would refute taking it at face you know, value. You know, well, you know, some people have accused me of slipping off of Occam's razor. You know, like Occam's razor is, you know, the simplest explanation is usually the mm-hmm. truest. You know, so in this, you know, day and age, Occam's razor is, it's your brain. But, you know, you know, back in the day and when, you know, not that long ago, Occam's razor was, you know, this is what's happening. Uh, and let's just start from, you know, that assumption. So uh, I think, you know, people, you know, believing that it's just your brain or it's all your brain is a relatively, you know, new, you know, notion. And, uh, you know, up until maybe a hundred years ago, uh, you know, you know, there was a, you know, sophisticated or maybe not a hundred years ago, but, you know, you know, uh, Spinoza probably you know, maybe close to 300 years now, um, you know, there was a, you know, sophisticated, uh, 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 you know, metaphysics, which was both a, you know, scientific and, you know, theological mm-hmm. way of, you know, looking at, uh, you know, consciousness and the natural world. I mean, even, you know, Descartes with, uh, I think they're, you know, I think therefore I am you know, believed in God and that God communicated through humans, you know, th- you know, through the pineal gland, mm-hmm. you know, so even a, you know, so-called stark materialist, you know, like Descartes, you know, was a theist. I mean, he believed in God and uh, explained, you know, consciousness and, you know, thoughts and, you know, perceptions through a, you know, sophisticated, you know, metaphysics, which, you know, didn't exclude God, didn't ex- glued spiritual, you know, verities, you know, so I'm, you know, kind of of the school, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, you know, that I, you know, do believe in an outside God, 
mm-hmm. who you know created our you know brain in order to communicate with us. You know, mm-hmm. that's the, the you know top down model, as opposed to you know you know to the bottom up you know model. You know, which is it's your brain. You, you, you know, uh, you know DMT is making the brain state that you're in feel more real than real. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that may be what's going on with a prophetic state that is occurring from the top down is that, you know, DMT is, you know, mediating that feeling, but it's just, you know, mediating that, that, you know, feeling. It's the way that our brain mind complex is able to, you know, feel that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's one that has to do with that relates, you know, to an outside level of reality. Okay. Um, does that make sense? Um, I think so. so. Basically, your your theory or your what you postulate is that um, there is a higher being, there's a god, and that god is using DMT to communicate with us through our brain. Or our brain was built to um, as a means of communication with that deity, and DMT is kind of the key to unlock well, it. Well, I think that, you know, DMT is responsible, you know, uh, you know, for the, you know, phenomenology, uh, mm-hmm. for example, of the prophetic state, um, you know, the, uh, the feelings and the perceptions and, you know, the reality sense. But it's not responsible for the notions, you know, for the ideas, you know, for the information. <clears throat> Which is contained in the DMT or in, you know, the prophetic state. In which case, I think, you know, that information is being, you know, downloaded from an outside source. Mm-hmm. You know, but it has to take some apprehensible form. It has to take mm-hmm. some, you know, form that we're able to apprehend, to, to perceive, to feel. It has to have that, you know, that intensity to replace ongoing reality. Um, it, you know, it's, you know, it has to be, you know, something that we can see and we can hear and we can, you know, have an, emo- and emotional, you know, connection to, and, you know, then the mind, uh, the, you know, cognitive, uh, apparatus, you know, the rational apparatus, you know, the intellect, you know, can then a- extract the information, you know, from the visions, And, you know, the information itself is from the outside. You know, the outside stimulates, let's say, the elevation of endogenous DMT to give that information some form. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then once you've got the, the you know, form, you can extract the information and tr- translate it. Uh, into, you know, verbal notions, you know, like it's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, some of the, you know, prophetic encounters, you know, let's say Zechariah, you know, he's got these huge visions and, you know, there's an angel, you know, that's in the visions and he's just completely flummoxed. And, you know, he says to the angel, you know, what are the, and, you know, the angel says, well, don't you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, and you know, so Zechariah says, "No, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. Please tell me." Uh, and you know, then you know, so then the angel translates the visions, 
into words that, you know, Zechariah can understand and mm-hmm. then, you know, communicate to his audience. You know, so, you know, there's the intellect and, you know, there's, you know, the what's called imagination, which is, you know, the, you know, the arena, the screen on which, you know, the perceptions are played out. And, you know, then, you know, there's the intellect, which is able to extract communicable information. But couldn't you make that case for basically any religion or any type of religious work? And you say, um, probably in Hinduism, there were experiences of, you know, connections with beings and, and uh, interactions with beings and experiences of, uh, you know, different emotions. Because in your book, you, just, you, you, you go through a lot of, um, you know, different emotions and different, different um, states of mind and different states of, of experience. And, and, um, one question that I had when I was reading this was, okay, these are, I think, like, like joy or fear or, or, um, you know, being in an ecstatic state. This is pretty, pretty normal human, um, human, um, emotional vocabulary in a way. And can you make the case for any religion? Can I say, okay, might as well be, you know, Hinduism might as well be one of the thousands of small religions that are out there. So why, why, why the focus on um, the Hebrew Bible and or the Bible in general? Well, for a number of reasons, you know, one is that it's a, you know, Western text uh, Mm. and, you know, we can relate, uh, you know, it it infuses Western, you know, civilization. I mean, um, our kids have, you know, biblical names, You know, there's, you know, Jacob and Isaac and Rebecca and Rachel and Sarah. And, um, you know, you know, the economy, you know, philosophy, uh, you know, Western ethics and morality, architecture, uh, um, aesthetics, uh, economics, you know, everything in you know the West, you can uh, you know trace it back, you know, to the Bible, you know, politics, you know, the nation state. Mm. Um you know, our, you know, current, you know, you know, forms of government, uh, in, you know, the West are, you know, biblically, uh, you know, focused and, you know, derive, you know, from, you know, biblical concepts. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, you know, that the ideas contained, you know, resonate, you know, more, with a, you know, Western audience than let's say an Eastern religion or a, you know, shamanic, you know, jungle based or, uh, you know, native based, you know, religion. Um, but isn't it in a way biased towards than the, 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 the Western audience? Because I guess that's, um, yeah. a, a Ch- a Chinese people put it this way, just pick an example, Chinese, they have a different culture, they have different religions, uh, different philosophical beliefs, but, Most likely, and that's something I don't know, um, they're going to have the same or similar experiences um, on under DMT. So, so where does this connection then come from? I mean, they, they, where is their experience coming from? Well, it's a completely biased uh, perspective, uh, but I think it's a uh, important, you know, bias to, uh, you know, to, you know, to consider. Like, you know, for example, uh, if you walk into any head shop. You know, you know, do you ever see the Ten Commandments or do you ever see a Bible or do you ever see a statue of Moses or a Jewish star? No, you see Ganesh, you see Tibetan Buddhist bells, mm-hmm. you see Tonkas, you see Malas, you, you know, see the scripture of great wisdom. Um, 
you you might see Jesus, but I'd be surprised. Uh, you know, mm. maybe a head shop in the south. But uh, you, you know, there's an incredible bias towards combining the psychedelic state with Eastern religions and shamanism, and mm. a, and an aversion, uh, an instinctual aversion mm. to relating the psychedelic experience. You know, you know, to the Western you know religions, especially you know Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that needs to be corrected. Um, I think there ought to be alternatives to the jungle-based, you know, you know, native, um, indigenous, um, um, religious model and the Eastern model, uh, which isn't available. You know, uh, what, you know, one of the problems with my prophetic states book is that it has you know, kind of, uh, it, you know, causes a lot of people in the, uh, uh, in the, you know, psychedelic community, you know, to bristle, Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, they'll start to react to Zionism, the Palestinians, um, Mm. you know, the punitive God, uh, you know, you know, all those kinds of, of things, you know, as a, you know, instead of, you know, taking an open-minded approach, you know, to the psychedelic state, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, if there's one thing that, you know, psychedelics are supposed to do, it's not close down your mind. And uh, if you can't have an open mind to other ways of looking at the psychedelic experience, you shouldn't be taking psychedelics. You should be doing something else if they're going to make your mind more closed. You know, so, you know, one of the things I feel is important about, you know, bringing a, you know, a, you know, Western model, you know, to the, you know, psychedelic experience is that it, you know, provides a, you know, necessary corrective, you know, to the overemphasis on the East and on, you know, shamanism as, you know, ways to, understand the state you know um and it's diffusing into the you know scientific community as well like if you read the you know book by you know bill richards uh from johns hopkins um you know he's you know the lead psychologist there you know doing psychotherapy and he uh you know wrote a book back called you know sacred knowledge Yeah, and you know he uh, spends about three pages dismantling the Jewish prophetic you know tradition um, as a way of understanding the psychedelic experience. Uh, you know, for him, it's you know the New Age. It's but uh, it's uh, well, um, you know, Vedanta, uh, a you know Hindu you know philosophic approach. And, you know, some Christianity, but kind of a, you know, mystical, you know, sort of Christianity. Uh, and it's a be, it's because of his emphasis on the mystical, on the mystical unit of state, which he deems, you know, superior, you know, to the interactive relational state. Um, you know, you know, for him, uh, you know, the mystical state, is the is is the you know peak of the mountain and the interactive relational state the you know and you know the paradigm of you know that is 
you know, the prophetic experience, uh, is, you know, is, is, you know, just the, you know, hilltops, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the surrounding hilltops, you know, so according to who, um, actually, you know, that's a question mm-hmm. that I think is important to pose. And, and um, you, you wrote a very long article about, you know, or a review th- of his book, um, which is also um, published on your websites. Um, and you mentioned his criticism and you also said that you know, he's speaking um, in terms of Christian faithfuls in a way, but aren't you doing the same with your theory? Because even if you look, if you look at the numbers, like how many, what's the percentage of, of um, uh, people of Jewish belief on the planet? It's like 0.3, 0.4%, and maybe take, take Christian, um, the Christian religion, which is quite close in a way, uh, then we're probably down to a third. But what's with all the rest? So it, aren't you making the same bias and saying, okay, spiritual experiences are inherently Western um, 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 and, and rooted in, in this religion? Is this, isn't that the same bias that you make? Independently of whether it's it's well valued in a certain way, but yeah, it's not. <laughs> so, oh, you know, not wanting to you know belabor the point, but you know, there would be no Christianity without you know Judaism. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if you you know look at you, you know you, you know where did Christianity you know come from, mm-hmm. um, and you know Jesus you know was Jewish. Absolutely, His, yeah. You know, 12 apostles were Jewish. Uh, you know, Paul was Jewish. Um, yeah, you know, so in a way, it is a way to be Jewish without being Jewish. That's my you know, sense <laughs> of um, a lot of you know, Christianity. Um, so, you know, if, yeah, and, you know, about one, you know, I guess, yeah, you know, there's a huge number of, you know, Christianity, you know, based religions out there, you know, 50% of the planet probably, mm-hmm. um, you know, Islam, I mean, even, you know, even though Islam, you know, discounts a lot of the narratives, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it still is, it's still, you know, it's still you, in, in, in a way. You know, some ways, you know, sees the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible as a, you know, precursor, mm-hmm. uh, as an earlier stage of Islam. Uh, so I think even the, you know, the, you know, two other major Western religions are still quite related to dependent on influenced by, you know, Judaism. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, not necessarily making a pitch for, you know, Judaism qua Judaism as, as I am for the interactive relational psychedelic experience or spiritual experience as compared to the unitive you know, mystical white light religious you know model uh, of religious or you know psychedelic experience um, and when you you know look at interactive relational religious um, you know traditions the one that has uh the one that, you know, that I think has got the most mature, sophisticated approach is, you know, Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, you know, could be anything else actually, you know, but, you know, Judaism has, you know, worked with the interactive relational experience, you know, more mm-hmm. than any other of, you know, of, uh, you know, of, you know, the other, you know, Western you know, traditions. Um, and I think, you know, 
uh, you know, there's a certain purity uh, to, you know, Judy, you know, you know, to Jewish, you know, thought. Uh, if you, you know, look at the, you know, two main, you know, concepts which are transmitted in the Hebrew Bible, you know, one is the golden rule, you know, love your fellow as yourself. And, uh, you know, the other is, you know, there is only one God, you know, there is one God, you know, so those are the two basic, you know, teachings of the Hebrew Bible. And, you know, those are very simple. Uh, they're quite pure. You can really, you know, kind of um, use those in the fractalization of everything else. I mean, everything else kind of flows out of those two, you know, basic, you know, notions. And, and you know, they're derivable from a careful examination of the interactive relational spiritual experience. Um you know, Hinduism, you were, you know, speaking about Hinduism, you, you know, they have, you know, gods and, you know, they have uh, deities and spirits which are able to communicate with humans. And, uh, you know, that's probably true. And they, you know, and it's, you know, believed and felt and experienced as true as well. Um, but, you know, you know, like I'm an abstracting kind of, you know, person. So I'm always, you know, looking you know, for the highest you know, level of abstraction. You know, what is the first cause? What's the original source? Mm-hmm. You know, where does everything start from? You know, so if you have beings, if you have deities, if you have spirits, uh, uh, you know, where do they, you know, come from? Like, you know, for example, you know, when I was uh, I'm involved with, you know, the Buddhist you know, community, you know, we uh, did, you know, lots of bowing to mm-hmm. statues and to pictures of, you know, deceased teachers and bodhisattvas. We, you know, prayed to them. Um, and I always kind of, you know, chafed against that. Like I thought to myself, I would rather, you know, bow to and pray to the highest. The highest level. You know, not, yeah. you know, some, you know, creation of the highest. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, that's, you know, been, you know, my, uh, you know, predilection is mm-hmm. to, well, if, you know, there is one God out of which everything else emanates, then I want to learn as much as I can about that one God, relate to that one God as much as possible, mm-hmm. you know, learn what communicating with that God is like and, you know, how to get the most out of it, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, so, you know, yeah. No, in, in, oh, in, a, in, a, way, in a way, I'm I'm by no means an expert in terms of um, religions because I think a kind of, I'd rather agnostic stay to it to say I can still nothing I can prove, nothing I can disprove. And, and um, I don't even want to get started to wrap my head around understanding, understanding all this. But um, for religions like Hinduism, I've, I've seen um, some very interesting, let's say, clarifications on the um, uh, argument that there are multiple deities. And um, I saw one um, teacher explaining that um, it's actually not multiple separate gods or de- deities that you have or that you pray to, but it's, it's, in a way, it's also just one one deity that takes different forms, and that takes several thousand forms in Hinduism. To what some it might appear as an I don't know elephant, or to some it might appear as a different being or a different deity or m- multiple deities. But um, essentially, it's just it, it, there's one deity that takes the form that it needs to take to communicate with whoever it addresses. So I guess you might be able to make a point that there's just one big. God or whatever it is that's that's um, 
is there even in, in different religions. But I mean, the, well, the whole idea you is, know, is um, well, you, you know, your belief determines what you do, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's important to, you know, know in the front of your mind, you know, who you're praying to. Are you praying to one of God's you know, messengers or one of his angels or his angels or one of the intermediaries lower down? Or are you praying to the most high? You know, so, you know, that's up to you. Um, I think, what, you know, one of, you know, the dangers of, of you know, focusing on the intermediaries uh, is that you begin to treat the intermediaries as the as the uh, the first cause or as the you know primary being uh it's an easy thing to do you 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 know deal with the messenger you know with the intermediary you know rather than the king uh so yeah you, you know that- there you know i understand the idea that there's one overarching perhaps you know deity in hinduism even shamanism but it depends on, you know, who you pray to and why. Mm-hmm. So I think in, you know, that way, if you can keep the idea in mind of one God, it, you know, simplifies things tremendously. And in the context of the um, DMT experiences that people have, um, you've always talked about, and also in your books, you always talked about multiple beings that people encounter. So that would be intermediaries, whether you call them, you know, angels or messengers or whatever. So that that's, DMT doesn't... DMT opens the way to the intermediaries in a way, not to the highest being. Right, right. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. You know, the intermediaries are perceptible. Uh, and that's what, you know, DMT you know, provides is a channel or a vehicle or, you know, vessel, uh, a you know, conduit, <clears throat> a perceptible, apprehensible conduit, you know, f- you know for what is you know, normally incomprehensible, imperceptible, you know, normally invisible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, you know, that the beings, I mean, you know, this is another discussion, but you know, the beings I think are, you know, coalesced information. in a way, uh, they, you know, provide, you know, they provide, a um you know perceptible uh thing that you know, carry the information that comes from you know something that is imperceptible um you, you know one or two of our volunteers described you know a you know feeling of the one god or an inkling or an intimation Uh, but, you know, only in a, you know, it, you know, wasn't the most striking aspect of the effect. The most striking aspect of the, of, you know, the DMT effect, um, is, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the content of, of that state. And, you know, to the extent that there are beings, you know, filling that space, then that's the thing that, you know, draws, um, you know, most of your attention. Mm-hmm. And you talk about cause and effect as a way to explain God also in your, I don't know if it's the first or second book, but um, 
you you mentioned that that that's kind of the the ultimate argument that there there has to be some some cause eventually and and y you you can't possibly go to that very first cause or the very last effect because there there is none in a way so that's that's well there's well there's well there well well so there isn't any that that's comprehensible uh, you know you know something which existed you know, before existence mm -hmm. like you know what created the big bang you, you know that's incomprehensible mm -hmm. you 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 cannot even imagine it mm -hmm. um yeah and you know what occurs after existence is over you know what exists you know once you know there's the big crunch mm -hmm. yeah you know you know that's completely incomprehensible you know because you know um, our minds and our brains you know uh they contain energy contain matter occupy mm -hmm. space and you know you know those are qualities of existence rather mm -hmm. than of, you know non-existence so i think once we start to look at what's before and after on existence it kind of breaks down um But, but yeah, you know, the whole idea of, you know, cause and effect was, uh, one of the ways that I first got my, you know, toehold mm -hmm. into understanding God or appreciating God or, you know, realizing, this, you know, that there is a God, you know, because, uh, you, you know, Buddhism or, you know, the Eastern religions, you know, teach, you know, that, you know, cause and effect is the underlying, you know, mechanism of existence, you know, everything which exists you know, has precursors, everything which will exist in the future is dependent on the present and the past, you know, so, you know, if, um, if everything is, you know, you know, like if everything has a beginning and a middle and an end, you know, you know, like a cause and an effect, mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, what created cause and effect, um, you know, so if, you know, cause and effect, you know, has got a beginning and a middle and an end, what, you know, created and sustains cause and effect and what exists, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, and, you know, what exists, um, you know, what exists, you know, like after cause and effect. If, if you know, everything has got a cause, then, you know, cause and effect has got a cause. <laughs> and if everything mm -hmm. ends according to, you know, cause and effect, then, you know, cause and effect ends as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, what, you know, takes the, the place of cause and effect, what, you know, created cause and effect, you know, what contains cause and effect. Um, yeah, you know, so then I started to, you know, think about God as, you know, the creator and sustainer of cause and effect. And after, you know, cause and effect is gone or before cause and effect existed, you know, there's God, which is an incomprehensible idea, but mm -hmm. still uh, it's one you have to uh, kind of chew on. You know, also uh, with respect to, you know, cause and effect, you know, they used to, you know, they, they, you know, teach in, you know, Buddhism, or at least, you know, the Buddhism that I was, you know, trained in is that, you know, cause and effect is impersonal. It just grinds away. It's like a law of nature. But, you know, like the laws of nature, you know, cause and effect encourages certain things and discourages others. So I thought, well, you know, in a way, it's opinionated. It's got, mm -hmm. you, you know, certain things that are encouraging you to do certain things and other things that are discouraging you. You know, like, you know, for example, if you are pissed off and disgruntled and thinking about hurting somebody mm -hmm. and you stub your toe 
and you go, ouch. I mean, that's built into cause and effect. And that cause and effect, you know, mechanism discourages you from feeling anger, resentful, plotting revenge. You know, so that in a way uh, isn't completely neutral. In, in, in a way, it's a flavor. It's a specific quality of, you know, cause and effect. So it's as if, you know, the laws of, you know, nature and, you know, the laws of, you know, morality uh, are both, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, you know, both operating along a certain, uh, certain kind of, you know, trajectory, uh, which is, uh, I'm evolving into a, a, you know, desired outcome. You know, so, you know, um, I started to wonder and still do, but I think I've got a, you know, you know, somewhat of a, you know, handle on it is, you know, who's discouraging and who's encouraging, you know, you know, why is cause and effect, you know, the way it is, mm-hmm. um, you know, why is, you know, kindness, you know, generally rewarded and, you know, meanness, you know, generally not, you know, so that must reflect the creator and sustainer of cause and effect which mm-hmm. in, you know, the Jewish, you know, model would be God, you know, so you want to learn about what is God's nature, you know, you know, loving and kind and just omnipotent, omniscient, atemporal, those kinds of things. Uh, and you could start to uh, articulate uh, those qualities through a careful reading of the text, which mm-hmm. uh, I think it provides. I guess that's, um, I mean, the whole issue of God and the whole issue of, of um, you know, what, what cost what and uh, what religion there is, is something that, um, you know, people have been arguing about, uh, discussing for centuries, millennia, and, and even longer than that. Um, but I want to go back to, to one quote you made um, several times in both of your books by one of your mentors, and that was, that is, um, if so, so what? And um, with regards to DMT and with regards to, the potential connection that we have to all this, then if so, so what, what's, what's for us to learn if there's this pathway that we can access in a way. Right. Um, well, but, you know, uh, to, you know, get back to what you were, you're saying about, uh, you know, the nature of God and the nature of, you know, of, you know, religious, you know, verities, mm-hmm can be debated and, you know, and you know, has been debated, you know, for millennia, you know, the, um, that's true, but I would hate to see this, you know, psychedelic, you know, research field use, uh, or use the, you know, psychedelic state to advance one particular religious viewpoint, which I think is taking place now. It's uh, dispensing with the interactive relational one, which is the Jewish one, and substituting mm-hmm. or you know deifying uh, or placing on the very highest level the Advaita Vedanta mystical unitive religious model. Um, there's mm-hmm. no reason why the psychedelic community needs to come down on that particular you know, side of the fence. I think it's a you know, premature uh, conclusion. Uh, and to just say the interactive relational state is, is you know, low level. 
is really, uh, it's a bad idea. Um, I don't think it's intellectually sound. I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, theologically, uh, you know, suspect. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's not responsible at a moral and an ethical level, mm-hmm. you know, to say, you know, psychedelics prove that the fundamental religious experience is X, Y, and Z. I don't think it, you know, I don't think it really does that at all. I think it establishes that you can be influenced in your beliefs by the you know, psychedelic you know, drug experience. And depending on what your beliefs are, they become more certain. But that you know, doesn't mean that other religious models, you know, theological mm-hmm. perspectives are, you know, not, um, you know, just as you know, valid. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, What's the future for DMT research? What would, you, what would you like to see happening in the next months, years, decades? Well, if so, so what, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, well that was a you know, quote from Danny Friedman, um, mm-hmm. who studied psychedelics at Yale and NIMH and at, at Chicago, UCLA. He was, you know, quite the guy. Um, yeah, you know, he basically believed that the best place for, you know, psychedelics was in religion, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily, you know, science. Um, but I'm not sure I agree with that. I think the, I, I think, well, you can look at all kinds of applications for the, you know, psychedelic state. And if you, you know, if you look at those applications, It's apparent that, you know, psychedelics are closing in on the title of panacea. Um, you know, they help OCD, they help depression, they help mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress. Uh, they, you know, they increase your appreciation for nature. They keep you from spouse beating. They re, They improve your chances of staying out of prison. Um, they're good for eating disorders, good for openness. They, they help your spiritual development. Yeah, you, you know, they're panaceas. But if you look at, you know, Charles Manson's group, which is an example I always like to, you know, bring up. Uh, you know, Charles, you know, Manson gave LSD to his, you know, followers. Mm. And they were, you know, serial murderers. Um, but they, you know, came at the experience with a certain, you know, set of pre-existing values mm-hmm. and beliefs and personality structure. You know, they were, you know, sociopaths. You know, you know they were violent. They felt, uh, you know, they felt, you know, uh, that, you know, they were, uh, you know, taken um, advantage of. Uh, and they wanted, you know, you know, to get back at, you know, society, you know, so, you know, Manson believed those things. He spun this, uh, strange ideology around them called Helter Skelter, mm-hmm. uh, which involved, you know, race wars and, you know, him and his, you know, family coming out on top after the, you know, race wars and stuff. And they, you know, took enough LSD with, 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 you know, Charles Manson and, 
those beliefs became cemented. They became their worldview, unshakable, convinced, mm-hmm. and they went ahead and you know followed through on their new on their you know newfound religion. You know, so I I think any you know drug which can affect such widely disparate results has got more than going has got more going on than it's entheogenic or it's you know you know it's you know it's it you know causes people to become you know uh, you know serial killers you know nobody in the current you know wave of you know research has become a you know serial killer mm-hmm. and you know nobody in you know Manson's group became monks so I think we we you know need to dig you know deeper into what you know psychedelics are doing in order to maximize their benefit and minimize their harm. And I think if you look at these drugs as stimulating the imagination and then maybe from the you know clinical point of view stimulating the placebo response um as their um as their you know as their you know, fundamental effects and everything else is a, you know, higher level structure that the placebo effect, you know, then, you know, works on, you know, so it's, you know, like the lower level uh, of the things that you see your psychedelics do are centered on their enhancing the placebo effect. If you have somebody in a depression study, then the placebo enhancement will, you know, will, you know, work on the antidepressant, you know, model that overlays the placebo effect, Mm -hmm. which is kind of stirring the pot. Uh, If you want to be a, you know, murderer and, you know, and, you know, that's your overlying uh, conceptual, emotional, structure, the placebo enhancement effect, you know, works on that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got OCD, if you've got stress, if you want to be you know, more creative, um, the overlying structure, look, you know, there ought to be some, you know, physical analogy you can make. You know, it isn't quite like just an amplification, uh, but it's, you know, it's, you know, more of the you know, coming to the, you know, full fruition uh, mm-hmm. of inchoate or uh, primitive or, you know, uh, you know, hints or intimations of how you want to be, uh, what you want to believe, the way you want your life to evolve. You, you know, those are the you know, the overlying structures which are worked on from below by the enhancement of the placebo effect, which I think takes place with, you know, psychedelics, which would then explain the, you know, panacea-like, you know, property or your properties that we're, you know, seeing with, you know, psychedelic research with these drugs now. I see. You know, so it 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 bespeaks, uh, you know, kind of an epistemological, uh, you know, can of worms because uh, it, Kind of is a, it, it, it's it's a way to um, start to you know deconstruct who we are, um, but uh, I haven't really worked out that that thread yet. But uh, you know, if the whole you know if if the if 
you know, if you know who we are and you know what we believe is, you know, simply uh, more or less active placebo at work, then we really have to start to you know look in the mirror a bit more carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know psychedelics can uh, you know push us to looking in the mirror in that way uh, if we're open minded about what they do. You know, not you know necessarily that they're entheogenic or they make you into a you know serial killer, but they reveal to us the nature of mind and how we relate it to uh, you know to reality. Mm-hmm. So, so in in the um, context of the placebo effect, how do you see um, the current trends, so to speak, uh, of microdosing? So taking minuscule doses of um, psychoactive, psychoactive substances to enhance ourselves without going through the full experience um, that a high dose would offer. Right. Um, well, so microdosing is, you know, like a relative term. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, you, you can take, you know, you know, very, very small doses, you know, which are, completely imperceptible. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to distinguish them from a placebo. Um, and, you know, back in the day, you know, there were some older studies giving low doses of LSD, you know, to, you know, to depressants, you know, to depressed inpatients. And, uh, the, you know, the, and, you know, they gave very small doses um, every day and these depressed inpatients improved at the same you know time course that you would see in the case of, antidepressants like, you know, Prozac and, you know, the long-term, you know, pharmacological effects of Prozac and of LSD are quite comparable. They, you know, down-regulate, you know, serotonin receptors, you know, so small, small doses of LSD, for example, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, you know, could be working, um, you know, like Prozac, you know, like an antidepressant. Um, and, you know, there are some studies, you know, you know, giving, Uh, you know, Prozac to normal, you know, volunteers. You know, these are older studies. Um, and, you know, they demonstrated, you know, some improvement in mental state, mood, performance, those kinds of things. Um, if you're, you know, taking a small dose, but you're still, you know, feeling an effect, it can be, you know, like a nootropic, you know, mm-hmm. like Adderall, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or, you know, modafinil. It, it, it can just act, you know, like a mild stimulant, you know, so you could be, you know, thinking uh, more sharply, more quickly. You have some, you know, some novel ideas. Um, yeah, you know, so, you know, like in our DMT studies, small, you know, the the smaller than threshold, you know, doses of the drug, you know, were, you know, psychoactive. And in some people, they, they you know, like those. Uh, you know, sub-psychedelic doses. They were stimulatory. One person described them as MDMA-like. One person d- described them as opiate-like. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you know, might be just kind of slightly buzzed on, on one, on, on a, you know, particular microdose. You know, like a couple strong cups of coffee with some sparkles added in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once you start to, you know, tip into the, you know, psychedelic, arena once you know there's you know kind of the you know whiff of a you know psychedelic effect i think you then start to you know tiptoe uh into the activation of the placebo response 
you know, so, um, you can maybe be more convinced of things that you wish you were more convinced of their truth, let's say, um, mm -hmm. or you can act in ways that you would like to act, you know, more than you were before because you're certain of them in ways that you weren't before, you know, so that I think is, you know, where you start to, you know, drift into the placebo enhancement. I see. I see. Um, uh, you've met um, Albert Hoffman, the uh, person who discovered um, LSD. Was it at a time when you were already in the process of um, this new approach that you discovered for yourself or was it before that? Uh, well, I met Hoffman when I was on sabbatical um, in 1992. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I was about, you know, I had completed the first study at the end of 91. And mm -hmm. so I was going through Western Europe, you know, you know, meeting with, you know, people, you know, and describing our results. Uh, you, you know, so I was still pretty hard boiled. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't anywhere, you know, near to, you know, where I've gotten to since then. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you, well, you know, it, it was, a, you know, it was quite a you know fun afternoon with, with, you know, Dr. Hoffman. Um, we drank, you know, tea up at his place. Uh, a couple other, you know, psychiatrists, you know, mm. were with us. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in his, you know, beautiful house, in his beautiful yard. Well, I, well, well. So I have a question for you about Albert Hoffman. It's a, you know, very unknown, you know, piece of, you know, trivia. You know, what is Albert Hoffman's wife's name? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no, absolutely no, yeah. no idea. Uh, oh yeah, most people don't. I mean, everybody, you know, knows that Hoffman's first name was Al. It was Albert, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, but but his wife's name was Anita, Anita Hoffman. Anita Hoffman, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so Anita Hoffman made tea, and uh, uh -huh. yeah, you know, we mostly were you know talking. Well, you know, there are uh, um, a couple of things we spoke about that day. You know, one was you know microdosing. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, Hoffman was a keen fan of my of 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 you know microdosing. Like, you know, 10 micrograms, mm -hmm. 20 micrograms. Um, and, you know, he was also a big you know, fan of, of one of his inventions, which was called ergotamine, um, which, uh, no, no, I don't mean er er ergotamine. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm blanking on the word, on the name of the drug. Well, oh, not Kaffergot. It might be ergotamine, mm -hmm. you know, but it was an ergot alkaloid which, you know, he, you know, developed around this you know, same time mm -hmm. that, you know, he, he developed LSD. It may have been a few years later. Yeah, and it was a really good, you know, nootropic. Uh, slowed down dementia development and mm, okay. increased brain function. Um, and it's still prescribed. Oh, oh, it's called hydrogene. You know, that's the name hydrogen. of the drug, hydrogen. Okay, never heard of it. Um, and... Uh, Yeah, you know, it's you know, popular in Europe. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's included in some brain tonics uh, that are okay, okay. You know, relatively popular. And, uh, you know, some you know, people take it in the States as well. Yeah, I you see. know, so microdosing was a topic and, you know, hydrogen you know, was a topic. Um, 
you know, just besides, you know, politics and his, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, beautiful home and his, uh, you know, great stories. <laughs> so um, what's next for you? You have, um, you're still involved in the um, Cottonwood Foundation? Well, you know, Cottonwood is, you know, is mostly, you know, treading water these days. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I started it maybe 2007 or so, so almost 12 years ago. Um, yeah, but other groups are doing good work mm -hmm. uh, with respect to funding research, as, acting as, you know, fiscal sponsors. Um you know, kind of working on the kinds of things that Cottonwood was, you know, founded to, you know, work on. Um, you know, I was just beginning to, you know, write the prophetic states book around then. Mm -hmm. So the, the, you know, main thing that, you know, Cottonwood, you know, did was to act as the fiscal sponsor, you know, for the DMT documentary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we got a lot of, you know, you know, we got a lot of, you know, donations and, you know, funneled them through Cottonwood mm -hmm. as a, you know, tax deductible thing. Uh, but, you know, it's, you know, mostly, you know, lying, uh, you know, fallow these days. You, you know, one of our ideas was to build a freestanding research institute completely dedicated to, you know, psychedelic research. Mm -hmm. And it, it would include all, you know, the disciplines which, you know, touch upon and can be touched upon by the psychedelic state, anthropology, religion, economics, ethics, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, chemistry, pharmacology, you know, religion. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that has, you know, not yet materialized, which, you know, hopefully the dream or the vision of Cottonwood will help inspire other groups to uh, put something like that together. Um, Yeah, but, you know, like in terms of being, you know, clearing houses for education and information, uh, you know, working as an activist or an advocate, uh, you know, funding research, you know, groups like MAPS and Hefter and CSP, you know, Beckley Foundation are all, you know, doing that kind of work, you know, quite nicely now. Okay. And so what's, what's next for you yeah, personally? Uh, are well, you working on a new book or any new, um, anything, new movies, new books, new discoveries um well i completed a large you know project you know uh you, you know mid last year it was working as one of the three co-editors for a special issue of frontiers in pharmacology on mm -hmm. you know psychedelic and drug research in the 21st you know, century um i was working uh with a You know, a couple of other guys, Andrew Gallimore in Japan and Ed Frexa in Hungary, uh, you know, collecting, you know, manuscripts and finding reviewers and working the manuscripts, you know, through the, you know, the review, you know, process. Um, you know, so I completed, you know, my, you know, part of that work. It was about an 18 month project. You mm -hmm. know, so that, you know, took a lot of time and I, you know, finished that this summer. Uh, and I'm, you know, working on some autobiographical fiction. I completed the you know first issue or the first you know volume, um, and uh, it describes that you know year of being sick and kind of a mm. you know kind of a humor you know it's 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 a humorous it's a humorous approach to near fatal illness. Uh, 
So it's my first stab at you know fiction, uh, which uh, you know hopefully will be going to the press in a few weeks. I'm you know gathering up blurbs right now. Yeah, actually, if you would like to you know take a look at it and think about endorsing it, I could you know send you the PDF. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Please send it over. Would love to. And then I guess it will be published on your website, uh, rickstrassman.com. There will be more information about this. Rickstrassman.com is my website, mm-hmm. and I have a you know Facebook you know presence mm-hmm. too, so you can contact me. You, you know, see what's what's going on uh, through Facebook as well. Wonderful. So, Rick, um, we went on for quite some time now, three and a half hours almost. Um, so, I want to—I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Although it's—it's it's really fascinating, and and um, um, yeah, well, could go on for hours. But there's there's two questions I always ask um, everyone that I'm talking to, and um, the first question is. This is a series of interviews with extraordinary people and um, you are progressing the world's and our, well, the humanity, I could say, um, with your research, but also you know, with the um, thought experiments um, or with your, your um, research that you do. So who do you consider someone extraordinary? Oh, right. You asked me that when we did our pre-interview. Oh, gosh, I didn't <laughs> think about it. So... Who do I think is extraordinary? Uh, extraordinary. You know, I like Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I like Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe those might be the two people that just, you know, pop up in my mind. You know, they're, you know, hardworking, they've got their, their, you know, feet on the ground. They're really, you know, pushing the envelope. They're really challenging people to be who they are to the ultimate degree to bring, you know, good into the world. So, uh, you know, those are the first two people that come to mind. Wonderful. And so my last question to you would be, um, what's to, to anyone who's watching this or to anyone who's listening to this, What's um, your message? What's your most important message? My most important message? Uh, well, I would say it's the golden rule. I think that's, that's the bottom line of, you know, how to, you know, treat everything out there, you know, um, to love it as much as you love yourself, which is tough because a lot of people don't love themselves. So in order to, you know, love things they need to love themselves and it's sort of uh i think it has the capacity or the potential to be a very powerful you know uh you know positive you know feedback loop you know to love your you know to love uh your fellow as yourself so you know your uh, your fellow is everything other than you which is close at hand (laughs) Rick, I thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And um, I'm very interested what will come out of your research next. Well, great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rob. It was a pleasure. We really covered a lot of territory today. Definitely. Wonderful. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, Finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. 
But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website, you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content. So don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Charity Lee. In 2007, Charity had to hear from the police what no parent ever wants to hear. Her four-year-old daughter, Ella, had been murdered. But that wasn't the only shock that day. The murderer turned out to be Charity's 13-year-old son, Ella's very own brother. Rob and Charity talk about how it's even possible to cope with a trauma like this. How it was possible to ever forgive her son why she thinks that we as a society have an even greater responsibility to protect those who sometimes do the most harm to us and much more join the conversation now